Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. It's your bitch, Christy Oxborough, and with me, as always, love of my life, the weird owl to my Yankovic, Lauren Ash. How you doing? I am jazzed. I love that for you. Yeah. Yeah. Really excited about this episode. Gotta be honest with you. Came alive. Oh, Came alive. see? It makes a big difference in the world of research. It does. If, if it was a day, it would be different. But because we are in it for so long, yeah. if it's something you're really jazzed about, then it doesn't feel like a slog. Yeah, it, then it doesn't feel like a slog. I mean, sure. Did I get into things in the research for this that I never saw coming that have scarred me deeper than my Gacy research? I did. But um, still, I got to say, I think this may have been my favorite one yet. Hey! Yeah. Oh, that's fun. I feel... Uh, that we are at, I, I can already see spinoffs, if I may, of this episode in future episodes. I don't want to jinx it. But, you know, maybe if the, the people feel like what I do is compelling, then they'll reach out and let us know that they'd like to see some more. You know what I mean? Like, it's no... When, when have what you've done not been compelling? I, well, that grammar was messed, but the point is... You. Bless you. Point, the point was there. Uh, oh, God. Well, I couldn't be more excited. I mean, I also love that. I guess I could say, I assume they they read it when they clicked on it. Maybe they didn't. But today is a special X-Files episode. That's right. And I'm jazzed. And I didn't even watch the series when it was on. <laughs> well, see, this was some, this is, again, this is my favorite show of all time to this day. Yeah. And I know that you've never watched it. So I'm also just very excited to tell you about a handful of great episodes of the show. Like, that's also part of it. You know what I mean? Like, 
I can't wait. Whether you like it or not. Like when I explain reality shows to you, it's one of my favorite things. You yeah. Know? I should also be noted, we both showed up wearing Peekaboo Desperado shirts today. So sometimes the synchronicities are alive. I've got to say, what a gift. I know when we started this show, it was always a wear the same shirt. Yeah. That was our bit. Always yep. wear the same. And But it was so much texting of us like 20 plus minutes before. Do you have this shirt? Hmm. Is this shirt clean? I don't yep. know. Do you have this one? I found this one. Do you have this one? And like trying to figure it out. And I don't know what our breaking point was, but we just started showing up in whatever shirt we were in. And now I am outright tickled every single time we end up being the same. Yeah. And I think that that's the nice thing is that it's it's added that layer of, of game and kismet when it's like we show yes. up in the same one. I mean, how about that? That's that's a more than words when we choose the same t-shirt at night that was inspired i i couldn't be happier for you to bring up extreme extreme that was extreme I believe, right i believe it was extreme yeah oh my god and didn't the at least uh, at least the lead singer didn't he have really long hair yes <laughs> I often conflate them, excuse me, I often conflate them with Nelson. Remember Nelson? The two blonde, they were twins or something, right? I believe they were. Yeah. Now my question is, I wonder, and I want to preface this by saying, I'm not suggesting that they weren't talented, but I'm like, was it also part of the look that got them as far as they got? Not that Nelson was so famous, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Uh, Well, my question is, was there a song other than that? Well, what was there? What was there? Because for Nelson, yeah. Oh, for Nelson, I have no idea. But for Extreme, it was like obviously it was more than words, uh, and that favorite moment of mine when they like tap on the guitar on the acoustic guitar, and you hear that like kind of like moment. I like that. Oh, I like it. Yeah, when, I like that they use the guitar as percussion, which is maybe one of the lamest things I've ever said, but it's fine. Um, but did they have another big hit or was that it for them? Extreme? Yeah. Also, if you back then, it was like, oh, God, I'm going to get married to this song. And then you grow up and you hear the words and you go, oh, my God. Not the romantic song you think it is. No, it's not. Um, Okay, so Nelson's number one hit apparently was Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection. Can't Live Without Your was in brackets. I don't remember this song. I'm going to click on it real quick. You probably won't be able to hear it, but I'm like, oh, it starts. They're on a couch. Uh, There's no (laughs) music. Oh, it was a false yeah, false start for the video? This isn't helping us. <laughs> I feel like I've no. never heard that song in my life. <laughs> Are they only famous for their looks? <laughs> and and me not thinking, their music. And me thinking that they were extreme. Could be that. Yeah. Could be that. Extreme was definitely, like, I remember the lead singer sitting on a stool Yep. With the guitar. And I thought he had long hair. Maybe it was in a ponytail or something. Uh, but he was like brunette. And then Nelson are the blondes, right? Who sang wholehearted? Was that extreme? Oh, my God. Remember that song? Yeah. 
That was extreme also. That was extreme also. Well, fuck. I can't believe I was like, did they only have one song? No. Because yeah. when I hear wholehearted in my head, it's the same tone <laughs> and voice that's singing. I mean, technically in my head, it's always the same voice. But you know what I mean? Like, I can hear it being the same people who sing that. So that makes sense. Yeah. Good for you. Wow. Sorry. Final final bit on this topic. I just pulled up a... I was just looking up some photos because I was trying to see... Um, you know, the lead singer and, and stuff and whatnot. Of course. This is from 2017. I don't know when the photo is from, but the article is from 2017. And this is one of the guitarists. And to that, I say, meow, meow, bitch. Wow. <laughs> Take a closer look at extreme, I guess is what we're <laughs> Take an extreme wow. close up. See you never. Extreme you close never. up. Oh, come on. Yeah. Extreme close up. I mean, Look, I have my. Moments. We are a little waning, Garth, already. So, thank you very much. That thank makes sense. Now much. he was. That was not the lead singer, right? It said guitarist. <gasps> nope, that guy's the lead singer. There he is. Um, oh, the guitarist is against shirts, <laughs> and I can see why. Anyhow, he has a lot of abs. Shirts. I thought you meant posing like with shirts behind him. And no, I no, realized, I no. She means he's shirtless. Also with a feather and a leather collar but this gentleman was the one with the long hair Ooh. got it because that face i'm like i absolutely remember that they look amazing <laughs> they don't look bad i guess maybe put it on the list look for I... extreme shows to see <laughs> we'd like to get extremely close stop it um oh god the fact that they had an album called get the funk out Get the funk out. Or is that, oh, oh that, might be an, that might be a song title. It was a different time in music. It was an if, absolute if different time. If you're a younger listener going, what on earth? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we know. We know. We know. Look, the 90s were, I mean, <laughs> just for anybody viewing, that's Nelson. There it is, yeah. To be clear. Um, my thing is, did one of them cut their hair just to be shocking? I absolutely remember seeing these guys, but yeah, I love that I don't remember hearing them. Yeah. This poster claims that they played guitar. I don't know if I buy it. Did they play their own instruments? Um, I think that it's possible that they did. I think my question is more like, did they get famous? Did it help them getting famous because they were kind of like a, I was going to say a sideshow. I didn't mean that, but it was like, it's just rare to see two like identical twins that have extremely long bleach blonde hair who are both musical. Like, I feel like, you know, for the looky-loos and whatnot. For the looky-loos. Okay, first of all, this is from Circus Magazine, which I couldn't be happier about. But look at that. Just a... Parade. Different time. Different time. That, Again, we're this, talking 80s, 90s here. Oh, what a 100%. Gift. They what a uh, gift. they look like they're playing harder than I bet they do. Like, yeah. this looks like White Snake, But I bet it's more Barry Manilow. Is that... I don't remember. Well, thank you for Barry Manilow. <laughs> the, the idea that I could say White Snake and Barry Manilow in the same collection, sentence, whatever... And it somehow made sense. I think we're calling them sentences, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I 
him everywhere and nowhere and oh mentally see that's the thing we've we've needed to record multiple episodes a week in a short period in yeah. a small amount of time uh so i usually only drive the bus once every once in a while mm-hmm. but this is now like my second time within the span of a week yeah and also in that same time frame you done you did two episodes and i've done two episodes in the same small two week span so it's been a lot of recording so my brain is everywhere yeah and we randomly recorded a breaking news <laughs> thing because i'm obsessed yes and because you know it's who we are it's what we do it is it is and so it's just been a lot of recording and a lot of researching and my brain is just not you know, where it should be. So when I forget that sentences are the correct word for a grouping of words strung together, it just makes sense. Look, I'm the one who said earnestly to you recently that I thought there was 56 weeks in a year. And (laughs) it's not because I don't know the truth. It's because my brain is a scrambled egg. Like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I mean, to be fair, when I when I corrected you, even though I didn't want to, yeah. when I corrected you, um, that delayed our record start by forty five minutes. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I I've spiraled. I fully spiraled. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying it in like a ooh, you held us up. I mean, when I, when these records start, I know darn well we're going. We're gonna go at probably at least five hours, yeah. um, from start to finish of everything we do in between. Uh, but. <laughs> It started so so naively with just a, oh, there's, I mean, there's 52 weeks. And just to watch her in real time go, wait, what? What did I say? Oh, my God. And then it was us researching w- w- ways to, to make your brain grow and, like, how do we do things? And I'm like, oh, well, let's research what apps we can get you. Let's Yep. Get on an app. Let's go online and buy you some pu- some sort of puzzles. Let's do something, you know. Have you been yep. keeping up with your puzzles, by the way? I got them in the mail and I haven't done one. I need mm. to make it a daily practice. I need to do some some puzzles every day. That's what we yeah. need to do. Yeah. I, I look, I, I think it was when my 23andMe health report was like, you have every gene uh, connected to uh, early onset dementia. That threw me a little. And then, yeah, then with the 56-week thing, I mean, I just, I spiraled into the ground. I was like, I'm going to be Meredith Grey's mother. (laughs) I'm going to have to mention my 50s. And I'm not putting that into the universe. Absolutely not. Of course, that is not going to happen. But yeah, I don't know that, like, it hurts me to do some brain teasers. Sure. But hey, I saw something earlier today that said, you know what, uh, you know what helps with brain health? naps and thank god for that i'll tell you this i tried to take a nap before we started today i like to get i like to crush a 20 minute nap if i can and i don't have to be fully out even but into that twilight sweet sleep zone um but today i didn't get a good nap and the answer or reason why was because i had a fly buzzing around that room that was as loud as sam kinnison it was literally just like 
deafeningly loud. Now, for those young people or people that aren't from America that may not know who Sam Kinison is, just know that was a great joke, okay? Um, really funny. And for some reason, we're back in the 80s again. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, but I guess we're just, it's a vintage episode. Yeah. Uh, and there you go. First of all, vintage episode couldn't be happier. Secondly, uh, just for my own sake, is that the same fly that you were yelling at Bean about earlier when we were voice noting about yes. Ocean Gate? Of course. Yes. Yeah. She's been chasing that fly around the house. And to be honest with you, I prefer if she caught it at this point. <laughs> Sharky is usually a very good fly hunter. Oh, he can take sure. them out of the year, out of the out of the air. Um yeah. <clears throat> he's really good at it. But yeah, this one is big and loud and it kept me awake. It kept me awake. So sorry. That's all right. I've always been very impressed. Uh, I mean, in general, but I'm very impressed with your ability to like, I can take a 20 minute nap and I'm good. Yeah. It's going to take me more than 20 minutes to get there. And if I have fallen asleep and then you time it and wake me 20 minutes later, best of luck to you because I'm not going to respond nicely. Well, you know? the other thing too is that one of the ways this has to work is that I didn't get a full night's sleep the night before. Then it sure. can really, you know, and typically I don't. So I think that that's part of it. It's just sheer exhaustion sure. that I've been going on for the better part of a decade. You know, yeah, uh, yeah I think that's what it is. And then yeah. when, you make, when you do television for a living, like you learn to to nap any. If you have t 10 minutes, you're like, I will go, I will go sleep. I will, I will close my eyes sure. for 10 minutes. Any chance you get, really. And that's to survive. <laughs> I mean, they always the say, uh, like, at, for, a, for a new parent, they mm -hmm. always say, sleep when the baby sleeps. Yep. Although, have you seen those TikTok videos? No. When they're, it's just people being like, they they pan over, they show the baby sleeping, they go, oh, and they just immediately fall, like, close their eyes, no matter what they're doing. They're, like, standing at the sink and they fall over. They're driving a car. They're do like, anything they're doing, they're just, oh, the baby's sleeping. And then they sleep and it it does make me laugh because yes sleep when the baby sleeps is absolutely something that uh is the main advice they give you when you are about to have a baby right even though you don't ask for it yeah people love to do that yeah well yeah also people i can't remember who it was that was saying it oh god it'll oh it's gonna anger me but um when when you're pregnant they're like, mm -hmm. oh, you're going to love it. Parenthood, beautiful thing. Beautiful. Love it. The second you have the baby, suddenly that turns into, ha, ha sucks, don't it? They're going to eat your soul. Like, it's wild. <laughs> and I can't remember what interview I saw that somebody was talking about that, but um, that's absolutely how it goes. Actually, I, th I think it was Andy Samberg. Oh. I could be wrong. It was the way I went, eat your soul. And I was like, ooh. Maybe I, maybe I was channeling Andy Samberg. I don't know. The point I is, I like it. I like that for you. Uh, at least it's a current reference for this episode. That's yep. nice. That's yep. nice. But why wouldn't maybe, we want it to be a vintage episode? Maybe it was Steve Gutenberg you were quoting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a gift in my life to quote Steve Gutenberg. Uh, him in at least the first three police academies because I think that's the only ones I've seen, and uh, of course, uh, Three Men and a Baby series what classic in films my life? classic films in my life um speaking of classic things no not great segue but the point is what you drinking over there listen i got i got a tumbler of water and i got Ooh. two diet cokes 
because uh, sure. I got to keep my wits about me. As you know, I don't love to drink when I'm reading because reading sure. is super easy for me, and I get I get tripping over my words. So I'm keeping it I'm keeping it cool tonight. How about you? Sure. Uh, well, I'm doing a water, of course. Uh, and then I went and grabbed a Slurpee. Uh, I was going to do booze, but then I was like, no, no, I'm driving the bus. I need my wits about me so I don't just forget that I need to take us somewhere so that oh, we don't, so I don't get to a point where I'm just all, where you say something and then I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah, break. Although now I might just go, oh, fuck, a break. Yeah, go. Like, <laughs> I may just now put that in there uh, for funsies. But that's I like that. I like that. Oh, God. Well, now that we've got that settled. Yeah. We may as well pop in. Let's and why do I remember it. that? Because I'm sober. There you go. Today. Tomorrow. We're doing our best. Be. Oh, God. We're just, we're doing our best to survive. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, so today's episode is called The X-Files Uncovered. How about it? I couldn't be happier when we start putting in extra punctuation in the titles. Oh, yeah. And also, The X-Files, come on, this is fun. Fun mm. stuff, for real. All right. So for those who are like, what is this episode about? I'm going to tell you. The X-Files is an American television series that originally ran from 1993 to 2002 on the Fox network. And for a young Lauren Ash, this series became more than an obsession. It was a way of life. This week, Lauren has selected five carefully curated episodes of the show. She will not only break down these episodes and provide behind-the-scenes tidbits about them, but she will also get into even bigger detail about each of the specific real-life cases that inspired them. And in case you're wondering, yes, she absolutely named her dog Fox after David Duchovny's character, Fox Mulder, on the show. And yes, David Duchovny is still her longest-standing crush. Regardless of these frivolous facts, Lauren is going to put all, all of that teenage energy aside and be super professional as she takes us on a journey involving everything from a disappearing Navy destroyer to Japanese war crimes. The truth, <laughs> the truth is out there. And in this episode, Lauren is calling the X-Files Uncovered. <laughs> Oh, I just could not love it more. I, I I messaged Christy earlier, and I was like, "Just no, this is the most unhinged synopsis I think I've ever written," and I could not be happier about it. Look, you're into it. I am. You're jazzed about the whole idea of this episode. I couldn't be happier. You're coming alive. I am. I feel very alive. Yeah. All right, before we get started, I need to give a trigger warning. There will be mentions of suicide, sexual assault, war crimes, and human vivisection in this episode, which is a first for our show. So, trigger <laughs> warning if you need it. And don't worry, I will absolutely give you another warning when that bit is coming. And I don't dwell on it at all because I, I can't. Uh, but to get us started. The X-Files is an American science fiction drama television series created by Chris Carter. The original series aired from September 1993 to May 2002 on the Fox Network. During its original run, the program had nine seasons with 202 episodes. Jesus. A short tenth season, consisting of six episodes, ran from January to February in 2016, and following its rating success, it returned for an eleventh season of ten episodes, which ran from January to March 2018. 
In addition to the television series, there were two feature films, the 1998 film The X-Files and the standalone film The X-Files I Want to Believe, which came out in 2008, six years after the original TV run had ended. The series revolves around the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, (laughs) and two special agents. Special Agent Fox Mulder, played by David Duchovny, and Special Agent Dana Scully, played by Gillian Anderson. They investigate the X-Files, which are comprised of unsolved cases usually involving paranormal or just generally unexplained slash weird phenomena. Fox Mulder is a skilled FBI profiler. I just put it together when I was researching this that maybe that's why I've always been drawn to that job and remember. Um, And he's also what many could describe as a conspiracy theorist. He believes in the existence of extraterrestrial life due to an experience as a child when he witnessed his sister Samantha being abducted by aliens. Conversely, well, but was it? More on that later. (laughs) Crafty. There you are. Conversely, Dana Scully is a medical doctor and a skeptic who has been assigned to scientifically analyze Mulder's discoveries through his work on the X-Files. Early in the series, both of them become pawns in a much larger conflict and come to trust only one another as well as a few select other people. The agents also discover a government agenda to keep the existence of extraterrestrial life a secret. Mulder and Scully's shared adventures lead them to develop a very close bond, which, of course, by the end of the series, does develop into a romantic relationship, which there has been just scads of fan fiction written about. Oh, I Um, bet. Roughly one-third of the series episodes follow a complex story arc regarding the government and the overarching mythology of the show, whereas the other two-thirds of episodes are what they called Monster of the Week episodes, which focused on a one-off villain, mutant, monster, or just general, non-connected to the main storyline story. Sure. In the eighth and ninth seasons of the show, Gillian Anderson took precedence, while David Duchovny only appeared periodically throughout the seasons, as well as uh, there were new main characters introduced. FBI Special Agents John Doggett, played by Robert Patrick, which you will know as, Have you seen this boy? I was just going to run really fast. (laughs) Yeah, with the stick arms, yes. And he's Uh, the brother-in-law. Of the lead singer of Filter. That's right. That's right. If we want to continue talking about 90s bands. We are really going organically that yeah. I could not be happier about. Maybe that's because this yeah. also was primarily the 90s. Maybe that's what's infiltrated our brains without even knowing. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, the other new character was uh, Special Agent Monica Reyes, played by Annabeth Gish. Uh, now, in these seasons, Mulder and Scully's boss, assistant director Walter Skinner, played by Mitch Pileggi, who can get it, also became <laughs> a main character of the show. The X-Files was a hit for Fox and received mostly positive reviews, although its long-term story arc did get criticized near the end by critics. Um, it was initially considered a cult hit, uh, but soon turned into a pop culture phenomenon that tapped into the public mistrust of governments and large in- institutions, as well as embraced conspiracy theories and spiritual- spirituality, uh, as well as many other themes that were popular at the time. By its conclusion, the show was the longest running science fiction series in U.S. television history. How about that? Really? So. As Christy uh, mentioned in the synopsis that I wrote, I'm going to be breaking down five episodes. One of them is a two-parter. That one's last, but 
you know, essentially five episodes. I'm going to tell you about the episode. Again, I'm going to go through a kind of a breakdown of the episode, and then we will get into the real life cases that inspired, case or cases that inspired said episode. So the first we're going to talk about is an episode called The Erlenmeyer Flask. The Erlenmeyer Flask is the 24th episode and first season finale of The X-Files. It was written by the creator and executive producer of the show, Chris Carter, and directed by R.W. Goodwin. This episode is a mythology episode, uh, which of course began with the pilot in season one. Uh, It first aired in the U.S. on the Fox Network on May 13th, 1994. It was the most viewed episode of the show's first season and also received an Edgar Award nomination in the best episode in a TV series category. Wow. So, yeah. Here's what happens in the episode. We begin in Maryland. (laughs) There is a high-speed police chase that's enfolding at a waterfront. The driver of the car, Dr. William Sicker, is cornered by police officers and shot as he runs up a gangplank and leaps off of a ship into the water. The police fail to locate him in the moment, but do discover that as he's been shot, some of his blood has hit the ground. And it is green. Yeah. Shit. Soon afterwards, Deep Throat, which is a character played by (laughs) Jerry Harden on the show, approaches Fox Mulder with Sicare's case, saying Sicare is of major importance to revealing the truth. Now, the truth is an overarching term of what drives Mulder throughout the entire series. It's obviously just a blanket term about the truth of aliens, um, the government conspiracies happening, what happened to his sister Samantha, and so on and so forth. So Sicare hides out in the water for three days. He's very hurt. He emerges, collapses due to blood loss, and he is picked up in an ambulance. But as he is being driven away, a poisonous gas is emitted from his body when the paramedics perform a needle decompression. Miraculously, Sicare recovers and flees somehow from the ambulance. Now, for those who watched the show, this is the one where Deep Throat reveals that there's been experimentations happening on humans with extraterrestrial viruses. In those experimentations, six terminally ill volunteers were experimented on and had all begun recovering. That's when it was ordered that they all had to be destroyed as uh, the scientists behind those experiments did help Sicare escape. When Sicare is shot to death by the crew cut man, you're going to really love some of these character names. That is one of the character names. Uh, Mulder is exposed to the gas escaping from Sicare's wound, and it causes him to pass out. Deep Throat then meets with Scully outside of Mulder's apartment and says he may be able to make a deal with Mulder's captors. He gives Scully credentials necessary to enter the high containment facility at Fort Marlene, where in an absolutely iconic X-Files moment, Scully finds an alien fetus that is contained within liquid nitrogen. Yeah. At an exchange on a freeway overpass, Deep Throat presents that fetus to the crew cut man, who then shoots Deep Throat seconds later, which was another huge episode or moment in this episode in the series, because at that point, Deep Throat has been, you know, a recurring character throughout the season. And you do not see it coming that he's going to be killed in that moment. I should have said the spoilers at the beginning of this, but this is this information is it's over 20. I mean, it's if someone is currently watching it through for the first time and is like, hey, yeah, it's a 30 year old show. I'm just going to, you know, it's 30 years old. this year. Oh, my God, it's 30 Which is amazing because you're only 32. I started watching young. <laughs> oh, too young, but I didn't want to say anything. Thank you very much. Uh, 
At that moment, Mulder is thrown out of the crew cut man's van as it gets driven off. Scully runs to Deep Throat, whose last words before dying are, Trust no one. <laughs> Several weeks weeks later, a despondent Mulder calls Scully, Mulder, Mulder calls Scully to inform her that the X-Files have been shut down. Meanwhile, in a scene mirroring the end of the pilot episode of the show, the cigarette-smoking man, a.k.a. Cancer Man, stores the alien Phoenix in the massive evidence room within the Pentagon. What an episode, and what a show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna go on the record right now. This is the greatest thing we've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe it's taken me this long. I couldn't be happier. Uh, I couldn't be happier with you. So, a little background on the episode. Chris Carter wrote the teleplay for this episode, which he described as, quote, the result of a year-long learning experience. He wanted to firmly establish the mythology of the series in this episode, exploring different avenues of government conspiracy and making the show about more than just UFOs. The writers also called this episode a defining moment for Scully, when the agent would hear from a fellow scientist that she was dealing with truly extraterrestrial material, this providing uh, Scully, who was always the skeptic, with scientific proof of extraterrestrial life from a scientist that she trusted. So, what part of this very convoluted plotline connects to a real-life case? I'm going to tell you. The scenes where the poisonous fumes were emitted by Dr. Sequeira was inspired by a real-life case of a woman named Gloria Ramirez, which occurred in California in February 1994. Chris Carter remembered this story when writing the script, and it became an established aspect of the mythology in the show in subsequent seasons. On February 19, 1994, Gloria Ramirez was checked into an emergency room in Riverside, California. The smell of her blood incapacitated 23 staff members, five of whom were admitted to the hospital. Gloria died 45 minutes after she was admitted, and no one could figure out why her blood had that effect on those around her. Oh my God, that's terrifying. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yep. Gloria Ramirez was an ordinary woman living in Riverside with two children and a husband. Reverend Brian Taylor called her a friend to everyone that she met and a joker who brought joy to others. However, that all changed when she was rushed to General Hospital in Riverside that February night. Not only would she pass away, but her body would mysteriously make those around her ill. She remains widely known as the toxic lady to this day. Jesus. At the, that night, she was undergoing a rapid heartbeat and had a drop in blood pressure. She could hardly breathe and was answering questions in incoherent sentences. At the time, she was just 31 years old. However, she also had late-stage cervical cancer which would explain her deteriorating medical condition at the time. Doctors and nurses went to work on her right away to try and save her life. They followed procedures as much as they could by injecting her with drugs to try and bring her vital signs back to normal, but nothing was working. When nurses removed Gloria's shirt to apply defibrillator electrodes, they noticed a strange oily sheen on her body. Medical staff also smelled a fruity, garlicky odor coming from her mouth. Nurses then placed a syringe in uh, Gloria Ramirez's arm to obtain a blood sample, and her blood smelled like ammonia, and there were manila-colored particles floating in it. Oh, my God. Yeah. The doctor in charge of the emergency room that night looked at the blood sample and agreed with the nurses on duty that something definitely wasn't right with Gloria Ramirez, and it had nothing to do with heart failure. Suddenly, one of the attending nurses starts to faint. And then another nurse developed breathing problems. 
Then a third nurse passes out, and when she awoke, she was unable to move her arms and legs. So what exactly was happening? A total of six people were unable to treat Ramirez because they kept having strange symptoms that were somehow related to the patient. Symptoms ranged from fainting and shortness of breath to nausea and temporary paralysis, as I just mentioned. We know that Ramirez died that night, but even after her death, that night at the hospital got weirder. In order to handle her body, a special team arrived in hazmat suits. The team searched the emergency room for any signs of poison gas, toxins, or other foreign substances. The hazmat team didn't find anything that could suggest how the medical staff would have fainted. The team then put the body in a sealed aluminum casket. An autopsy didn't happen until almost a week later and was done in a special room where the autopsy team conducted its work in hazmat suits as a precaution. In total, officials conducted three autopsies, one six days after her death, then one six weeks after that, and then the final autopsy took place right before her burial. It took county officials two months to release the body for a proper funeral because of the toxicity levels and fears that people would faint or pass out. During the second autopsy, the team concluded that there were signs of Tylenol, lidocaine, codeine, and Tegan, or Tegan, in her system. Tegan is an anti-nausea medication, and it breaks down into amines in the body. Amines are related to ammonia, which could explain the ammonia smell in her blood sample at the hospital. But more importantly, the toxicology report said that Gloria Ramirez had large amounts of dimethyl sulfone in her blood and tissues. Dimethyl sulfone does occur naturally in the human body as it breaks down certain substances, but once it enters the body, it disappears quickly with a half-life of just three days. However, there was so much in her system at the time of her death and at the time of this autopsy, it was registering at three times the normal amount six weeks after her death. On April 12, 1994, county officials announced that Ramirez had died of heart failure due to kidney failure brought on by the late-stage cervical cancer. Uh, She had been diagnosed with the cervical cancer just a few weeks prior to her death. The unusual substances in her blood were too low to explain for her death, even though there were elevated levels of ammonia and dimethyl sulfone, as I mentioned. But her family was enraged. Her sister blamed poor conditions at the hospital for her death. And although the facility had been cited for violations in the past, there was nothing in the county's investigation that pointed towards conditions in the hospital being at all at fault for Gloria's passing. After an investigation that lasted several months, officials concluded that the hospital staff had endured so much stress at the time of Gloria's death that they consequently suffered from mass sociogenic illness triggered by an odor. In other words, the official explanation was simply mass hysteria. But medical staff at the hospital urged the coroner's office to take a closer look at the file. The assistant deputy director, Pat Grant, did so. And made a startling conclusion. Gloria Ramirez had apparently covered her skin from head to toe in DMSO, or dimethyl sulfone, as a possible way to cure her late-stage cervical cancer. Medical science has labeled DMSO as a toxic toxic substance dating back to 1965. Now, back in the early 60s, research showed that This substance could relieve pain and reduce anxiety. Athletes would rub DMSO cream on their skin to relieve aches in their muscles. uh, And it was all the rage as a cure-all for people. Then a study in mice showed that DMSO could actually make you go blind. So at that point, the fad stopped for the most part. However, 
It was still maintained as an underground cure-all for many types of ailments. By the late 1970s, the only way to get your hands on the substance was as a degreaser that was bought in hardware stores. However, it's important to know that the degreasers were 99% pure DMSO as opposed to the far less concentrated form that was used in the muscle creams in the 1960s. So Pat Grant looked up what happens to DMSO when it's exposed to oxygen and had a revelation. The substance converts to dimethyl sulfate, not sulfone, because you're adding oxygen to the chemical structure, and dimethyl sulfate acts quite differently than dimethyl sulfone. It becomes a gas. Dimethyl sulfate vapors, it destroys cells in people's eyes, lungs, and mouths, when the vapor can get into your body, it can cause convulsions, delirium, and even paralysis. Of the 20 sy symptoms described by the medical staff that night, 19 of them match symptoms of people who have also had exposure to dimethyl sulfate vapors. So the medical staff didn't suffer from mass hysteria or from stress. They suffered from dimethyl sulfate poisoning. This theory adds up to the facts of the case. DMSO, DMSO cream would explain the sheen that doctors noted on Ramirez's skin. It would also explain the fruity slash garlicky odor coming from her mouth. And so the most likely explanation that is believed is that Gloria Ramirez, a.k.a. the toxic lady, used DMSO to try and relieve pain caused by her cancer. It should be noted her family has denied that she ever used it. But no matter how you look at the case, it's obviously sad all the way around. This young woman, far too young, found out that she had late-stage cervical cancer, and when there was no help from medical science, she turned to an archaic substance to potentially try and get some relief. In the end, her nickname, The Toxic Lady, is a very sad note of her final days. I will also add that I personally feel that there are elements in the Erlenmeyer flask episode that were probably also inspired by another real-life case that I'm going to discuss later. Um, that's in the episode entitled 731, so just put a pin in that. For now. Taking a little mouthful of the Diet Coke. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've done a lot of work already. I couldn't be happier. <laughs> Moving on to episode two. Episode two is, oh boy, Dodd Calm. It's not English. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. It, it's, I, the episode is set in the Norwegian Sea, so I think that that, I think it's probably Norwegian. I probably should have looked that one detail up, but. Regardless, Dodd Calm is the, which translates to Dead Calm, is sure. the 19th episode of the second season of The X-Files. It premiered on the Fox Network on March 10th, 1995. The story was written by Howard Gordon. The teleplay was written by Howard Gordon and Alex Gonza. And the episode was directed by Rob Bowman. The episode is a monster of the week story, meaning obviously it is unconnected to the wider mythology, as we discussed prior. This episode begins in the Norwegian Sea, where chaos has erupted on board the USS Ardent, an American destroyer escort ship. Due to mysterious yet unspecified events, half of the crew board lifeboats and abandon ship against captain's orders. 18 hours later, they're spotted by a Canadian fishing vessel. However, in that short amount of time, the young crew members have all undergone rapid aging. Oh. Mulder and Scully, of course, are called in to investigate. And they visit the ship's sole surviving crew member, Lieutenant Harper, who has been quarantined at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. Scully finds that Har Harper, despite being in his 20s, has aged to the point of being almost unrecognizable. Mulder explains that the Ardent vanished at the 65th parallel, a location with a history 
of ship disappearances. He believes that a wrinkle in time exists there and that the Ardent was the subject of government experimentation related to the Philadelphia experiment from World War II. Now, in Norway, Mulder and Scully get Henry Trodheim, played by John Savage, who is a naval trawler captain, to take them to the Ardent's last known location. After crashing into the bow of the ship, Mulder, Scully, and Trondheim find signs of advanced corrosion on the ship, even though it was only a few years old. Below decks, they find the mummified remains of several crew members. They also find the extremely aged commanding officer of Ardent, Captain Barclay, who claims that, quote, time got lost after his ship encountered a glowing light in the ocean. Trondheim is later attacked by a Norwegian pirate whaler called Olafsson, who has not aged despite being on the ship for the past two days. On the contrary, Mulder, Scully, and Trondheim begin to age at an alarming pace. Scully develops a theory that Ardent is sailing near a metallic object beneath the ocean that has caused free radicals to rapidly oxidize their bodies and age them. But Mulder notices that the ship's sewage pipe is the only one not corroded through. This causes them to realize that something from the ocean must have contaminated Ardent's potable water and has led to everyone aging. Olafsson and his men remain unaffected due to their consumption of recycled water from the sewage system. But desperate to survive, Trondheim kills Olafsson after he reveals this secret and then sets out to keep the water for himself. Scully learns from blood tests that the contaminated water cause, causes rapid oxidative damage and dramatically increases sodium chloride in the body. She tries to ration the drinkable water amongst she, Mulder, and Trondheim, but does discover Trondheim attempting to hoard what little water remains. Trondheim locks Scully out of the sewage hold, forcing her to use minuscule supplies to keep Mulder alive. The scene is harrowing. It's heartbreaking. You are rooting for them. The mysterious oxidant eventually eats through the ship's hull, flooding the hold and drowning Trondheim. The agents both lose consciousness shortly before Navy rescuers arrive at the ship. Scully later wakes up at the hospital where she's told that her written observations on the case helped the naval doctors reverse their aging and save Mulder from a near certain death. Scully says she wants to return to the Ardent to do more research, but the doctor tells her the ship sank shortly after their rescue due to the flooding. And now some background on this episode. Prior to this episode being produced, the Canadian forces had granted permission for the X-Files to use the H HMCS Mackenzie which was a decommissioned destroyer, for the production of the episodes Colony and Endgame. But X-Files creator Chris Carter wanted to take full advantage of the rare opportunity and asked Howard Gordon to write a third episode that could be filmed on the ship, which did become Dodd-Com. It should be noted they were shooting in Vancouver at the time, hence hey. their connection to Canada. It was initially believed that by using the same set for these three episodes, production uh, would be given somewhat of a break. Before the script for Dodd-Com was finished, Chris Carter even expressed his belief that this episode would provide everyone a great rest. Ironically, the episode became one of the most difficult to film during the second season. <laughs> oh my God, that's your episodes in a nutshell. Right? Oh my God, it's You're so like, true. I'll do this, it'll be a nice break. And then you're like, I've spent 12 hours. I've yeah. bitten off more than I can chew. Yeah. Unfortunately, when the crew began using the ship, a number of problems set in. For one thing, the temperature dropped substantially, making the entire filming process extremely uncomfortable for both the cast and the crew. The close quarters of the ship also meant the production was relatively cramped, which I will say is a real issue when you're shooting. 
Um, it can be difficult to set up shots and get the coverage you need, the depth you need, all of the above. It can be different, difficult to block things if things are, are narrow. Um, so that is a real kind of concern when making television. And finally, the aging makeup applied to David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson took multiple hours each day, resulting in significant delays. Director Rob Bowman later called Dodd Calm, quote, the episode from hell. <laughs> <laughs> Now, to ease filming issues, the producers tried to find an additional set that could double as a bar and a hospital, which was a task initially believed impossible by the show's location scouts, which I have to say is definitely understandable as those are two very different things to try and make one single location look like. Um, eventually, a place called the Jericho Sailing Club in Vancouver was selected, and when the set was completed... The cast and crew of Dodd-Com reportedly found it absolutely amazing that they had pulled it off, and I don't doubt that. David Duchovny was apparently particularly pleased about this set because it was a short distance away from where he was living in Vancouver at the time. The producers subsequently decided to find possible locations closer to where each of the main stars were living to ease future filming issues. But I know what you're thinking. How did this episode connect to a real-life case? Well, let me now tell you about the inspiration for Dodd Calm, something called the Philadelphia Project. Allegedly. On October 28, 1943, a U.S. Navy destroyer was made invisible and teleported from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Norfolk, Virginia, in an incident known as the Philadelphia Experiment. In the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, a newly commissioned destroyer called the USS Eldridge was being equipped with several large generators as part of a top-secret mission to win the Battle of the Atlantic once and for all. The Battle of the Atlantic was the longest continuous military campaign in World War II. It ran from 1939 to the defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945, covering a major part of the naval history of World War II. This campaign peaked from mid-1940 through to the end of 1943. So, rumors aboard the ship were that the generators were designed to power a new kind of magnetic field that would make the warship invisible to enemy radar. With the full crew on board, it was time to test the system. And then, in broad daylight, and in plain sight of nearby ships, the powerful generators were switched on. What happened next would baffle scientists and fuel decades of wild speculation. Witnesses describe an eerie, green-blue glow surrounding the hull of the ship, and then, instantaneously and inexplicably, the Eldridge disappeared. Not just invisible to radar, but gone, vanished into thin air. Hours later, there were reports of the Eldridge appearing in the Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Virginia, before later reappearing just as quickly back in Philadelphia. According to classified military reports, members of the Eldridge crew suffered from terrible burns, disorientation, and most shockingly, a few crewmen were apparently found partially embedded in the steel hull of the ship, still alive, but with arms or legs sealed to the deck. According to the story, there were many witnesses to the Philadelphia experiment, people who saw the ship's disappearance and its reappearance. But yet, only one witness came forward. And it wasn't until the 1950s that the details of it began to emerge. In fact, all of the information about the Philadelphia conspiracy derives from one single source, and that source was a man named Carl Allen. In 1956, Carl Allen began writing a book, excuse me, 
began writing what would be hundreds of letters to a man named Morris K. Jessup, who was the author of a 1955 book called The Case for the UFO. Going by the name Carlos Alande, Carl Allen tried to convince Jessup to stop the research he was then conducting on Albert Einstein's incomplete unified field theory. As part of this, he informed Jessup of the USS Eldridge conspiracy, claiming to have witnessed it himself while working on a ship called the SS Andrew Fus... Furuseth as a deckhand. When Jessup attempted to get more information from Allen, Allen was unable to provide any evidence to back up his claims. Unified field theory side note. For over a century, unified field theory has remained an open line of research. Albert Einstein coined the term unified field theory, which describes any attempt to unify the fundamental forces of physics between elementary particles into a single theoretical framework. Einstein spent the latter part of his life searching for such a unified field theory, but was unsuccessful. The popular discussion of unified field theory centers around the desire to find a theory that can describe how the universe behaves under the action of the four known forces, which are strong, electromagnetic, weak, and gravity. I read so much about this, and I'm going to be honest, I still can't really explain it. (laughs) Sure. Certainly not in any sort of succinct way. So just know that this was something that was never proven. But if it could be proven, then it could prove that teleportation would be possible. And let this be something for the Christie Science Nerd podcast we'll be releasing in 2049. (laughs) 2049? We're going to be tired. That's all I'm going to say. So, at around the same time, in 1956, the U.S. Office of Naval Research, or ONR, received an anonymous package labeled Happy Easter. Inside of it was a copy of Jessup's book, heavily annotated by what appeared to be three different contributors, each in different shades of blue, referring to each other as, quote, gypsies. The notes within, uh, within were related to UFOs, claiming to have knowledge of extraterrestrial life on Earth, and suggesting that Jessup's research on unified field theory was very close to some alien technology. There were also several allusions to the Philadelphia experiment. In a strange twist that served only to enhance belief in the Philadelphia conspiracy, two agents at the ONR took it upon themselves to privately print many copies of this annotated book, which then became known in certain circles as the Varro version. In 1957, the ONR invited Jessup to view the annotated copy of his book. He confirmed that the annotations did match the handwriting in Carl Allen's letters. It has since been confirmed that not only was it Carl Allen who sent the package to the ONR, but in 1969, he even admitted to writing all of the annotations himself. That's right. It looked like three different people had been writing in there, but they were all him. Now, I know what you're wondering. What was his aim in doing this? And he says his aim was to, quote, scare the hell out of Jessup. He basically wanted to deter Morris Jessup from continuing the investigation into unified field theory, which Carl Allen viewed as dangerous. He later retracted saying this, but much like you keep the screenshots, we keep the quotes. Hey. So who was Carlos Alande, a.k.a. Carl Allen? For a long time, that answer was as elusive as the man himself. 
In fact, nothing was known about him until a journalist named Robert Gorman wrote about him in 1980. Gorman apparently realized that he had an old family connection with Carl Allen uh, when he interviewed one of Allen's family members who described him as a, quote, creative and imaginative loner. According to Gorman, Allen had a history of mental illness, which it was speculated may have been behind some of the fabrications that he had alleged. Very sadly, Morris K. Jessup's story took a tragic turn. He was injured in a car accident, split up from his wife, and then did commit suicide in 1959. Uh, Carl Allen lived until 1994. He sporadically sent letters over the years to anyone who would listen about the Philadelphia experiment until his death. It should also be noted, after the release of the 1984 film The Philadelphia Experiment, a man named Al Bilek came forward claiming to have personally taken part in the secret experiment, which had allegedly uh, then, he had then allegedly been brainwashed to forget. He said it was only after seeing the movie in 1988 that all of his repressed memories came flooding back to him. Of course. Whether we believe that or not, obviously. Mm -hmm. Now, despite the insistent and constantly evolving claims of both of these men, it was the testimony of a third witness that ultimately shed some light on what may have really happened in Philadelphia during the wartime summer of 1949. In 1994, French-born astrophysicist and UFOologist Jacques F. Vallée published an article in the Journal of Scientific Exploration entitled Anatomy of a Hoax, The Philadelphia Experiment 50 Years Later. In writing a previous article about the Philadelphia experiment, Vallée asked writers to contact him if they had any further information about the alleged event. That's when he received a letter from Edward Dungeon, Dungeon who served in the U.S. Navy from 1942 to 1945. Dungeon had served on the USS Engstrom, which was dry docked in the Philadelphia Naval Yard during the summer of 1943. Dungeon was an electrician in the Navy and had full knowledge of the classified devices that were installed on both his ship and on the Eldridge, which, of course, was the ship in question. He said they were both there at the same time. Far from being teleportation engines designed by Einstein or potential aliens, the devices that were installed on the ship enabled the ships to scramble their magnetic signature using a technique called degaussing. The ship was wrapped in large cables, and a measured electrical current was passed through these cables to cancel out the ship's magnetic field. A degaussed ship wouldn't be invisible to radar, but it would be undetectable by the U-boat's magnetic torpedoes. Degaussing equipment was installed in the hull of Navy ships and could be turned on whenever the ship was in waters that might contain magnetic mines, uh, usually shallow, shallow waters in combat areas. It could be said that degaussing correctly done did, in a sense, make a ship invisible to the sensors of the magnetic mines, but the ship obviously would remain visible to the human eye, to radar, and to any underwater listening devices. Dudgeon was familiar with the rumors about the disappearing ships and mangled crewmen, but credited the fabrications to loose sailor talk about invisibility um, and torpedoes and the peculiarity of the degaussing process. The green glow that was seen was probably due to an electrical storm or to St. Elmo's fire. St. Elmo's fire can appear when high electrical voltage affects a gas. St. Elmo's fire is seen during thunderstorms when the ground below the storm is electrically charged and there is a high voltage in the air between the clouds and the ground. Wait, is this a science podcast now? <laughs> As for the Eldridge's mysterious appearance in Norfolk 
and then sudden return to Philadelphia, Dudgeon explained that the Navy used inland canals, which of course were off limits to commercial vessels, to allow them to make a trip in six hours that would usually take two days. So it is possible that when the ship was seen, quote, slightly later, it could have gotten there in a few hours when it would normally have taken multiple days. In another turn of events, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported in 1999 on a reunion of sailors who served on the USS Eldridge in Atlantic City. The sailors said the ship was in Brooklyn on its supposed date of disappearance. The ship's log did confirm this. Furthermore, the captain said no experiments were ever conducted on the vessel. Despite the differing accounts, both Dudgeon and the Eldridge crew confirmed that nothing otherworldly happened on the ship, yet some people continue to believe otherwise. After many years of searching, the staff of the Naval Archives and independent researchers have never located any official documents that support the assertion that an invisibility or teleportation experiment involving a Navy ship occurred at Philadelphia or any other location at any time. So, that is the story of the Philadelphia experiment, possibly the most famous and wildly, sorry, widely retold example of secret government experiments with teleportation and time travel. More than 70 years later, despite the absence of any physical evidence or corroborating testimony, the Philadelphia experiment survives as a fact in the minds of amateur paranormalists and conspiracy theorists around the world. I just want you to know... I'm living for this episode. (laughs) I love it. I paid for the whole seat, but I'm only using the edge. (laughs) That is one of my favorite things said in sports. I say it every game, even though it's not always accurate. But we are going to take a quick break before getting back into it. So grab a drink, hit the can, and we'll be right back with more X-Files insights on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. Before the break, Lauren had come alive while sharing her favorite show with us. Nothing makes me happier than seeing you in your element. Where are we headed next? Oh, where are we headed next? We're headed to a very small town. Very small town. Because we have to discuss, of course, an episode called Home. I was holding for the fans of the show who just went, oh, <laughs> I heard and I'm just my, like, mm. I heard them in my mind and in my heart. Oh, I like that. So home is easily 
the most controversial episode of the entire X-Files series. It is the second episode of the fourth season and originally aired on October 11th, 1996. Home is another Monster of the Week episode, which again are the standalone episodes that don't connect to the overall mythology. It was written by James Wong and Glenn Morgan, who had left The X-Files after season two to pursue making their own show. But after that show was not a huge success, they did return to The X-Files in season four, and this was their first episode back. Home was the only episode of The X-Files to carry a TVMA rating, Um, There had to be like a viewer discretion is advised warning that aired before the episode. And the content of the episode was so extreme, Fox would never repeat the episode. Wow. This was the only time in the history of the series that that happened. In 1997, a year later, when FX ran an all-day marathon of the most popular X-Files episodes, Home was the number one choice but I do believe it was many years before the show was actually ever shown on television again. And I know what you're thinking. Where was young Lauren Ash during the historic airing of this episode? Oh, no. As as being the biggest X-Files fan in the world, uh, I religiously watched every week. Regardless of whether I was watching live or not, I also recorded every episode on my VCR. That night I was babysitting, so I set the VCR to tape it, but something went wrong. I got home, and Mother Laurel told me I had missed one hell of an episode of the show, but I discovered that the VCR had glitched, and consequently, I did not see this episode until five years later, in 2001, when season four came out on DVD. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. It was such a thorn in my side that she had seen it, and I didn't, because we used to watch the show together every week. Of course. And uh, I didn't want to watch it when I was babysitting. The child would have been in bed at that time, but I was like, I was there alone. I was young. You know, That's I was like, I'll really wait responsible. Yeah, I was like, I'll wait till I get home. I don't want to freak myself out. I'll wait till I get home. And that's what being responsible got me. It got me five well, years in prison. Five <laughs> years I, of time I spent. I will also say maybe it's for the best that you didn't watch it till later. If it's well, TVMA, don't put it on TV again type episode. Let me tell you, my next sentence I had written was, And just let me say this, even with all of the buildup I had for this episode, it still both deeply disturbed and shocked me when I viewed it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. You just can't overhype this one, in my opinion. So critics were generally complimentary of Home. Uh, They praised the disturbing nature of the plot. Some felt that the violence in the episode, on the other hand, was excessive. Many critics identified themes within the episode that satirized the American dream, addressed globalization, and explored the nature of motherhood. It has been cited as being a seminal episode of The X-Files by both critics and crew members alike. And now a little bit about the episode. So, Mulder and Scully are called to investigate the death of a baby born with extreme severe physical defects located in the small, isolated town of Home, Pennsylvania. Mulder and Scully meet the Peacock family, a family of deformed father farmers, excuse me, who have rarely left their home in a decade. Initially, Mulder suspects these brothers of having kidnapped and raped a woman to father a child, which they then killed, but the investigation uncovers something else. The episode opens on a shadowy scene of a deformed woman giving birth. 
We hear odd cries coming from the baby. Something doesn't seem right. Then we see three similarly deformed men taking the baby to bury it outside near their dilapidated house during a rainstorm. One of the men stands off to the side crying as he is comforted by another one of the men. The third man buries the baby. Originally, the writers wanted the family to look typical so that viewers would feel like these are people that we could encounter in our everyday lives. But standards and practices felt that that was too intense a concept. And I know what you're thinking. What standards and practices? Well, I'm going to tell you. It's the department at a television network that's responsible for the moral, ethical, and legal implications of whatever is broadcast on said network. Basically, it's a big group of lawyers that read all of the drafts of scripts and see all of the cuts of a TV show and give notes on what they want to restrict, remove, or change. They're basically trying to get ahead of anything that could get the network sued. And yes, in my experience in television, they can be a real bum out. (laughs) (laughs) but it does say a lot that standards and practices were like it's too intense a concept to make these people seem like everyday people you need to make them seem like there's something else going on more more monster like so Mulder and scully are sent to investigate after this tiny corpse is found uh by children who are playing a sandlot type baseball game in a field Uh, While talking to Holmes Sheriff Andy Taylor, played by Tucker Smallwood, Mulder asks whether the Peacock brothers have been questioned about the baby. Taylor informs him that the house dates back to the American Civil War and is without electricity, running water, or heat. He also insinuates that the Peacock family has been inbreeding since the war. During an autopsy on the corpse, the agents discover that the baby died by suffocating uh, by inhaling dirt, meaning that it was unfortunately buried alive. Mm -hmm. A behind-the-scenes side note. Now, in an earlier cut of the episode, at the beginning, the baby's cries were made very realistic. And many who viewed the episode found this extremely upsetting. So the audio was actually altered so that the baby would sound sick and even slightly mutated. Uh, Fox noted that the audio change was needed to show that the child was diseased and that the peacocks were not simply murdering an innocent child, but rather the child was so deformed and was it was supposed to kind of telegraph that this baby was not going to survive. Right. Um, So you definitely I felt in the moment that you get that kind of feeling. I will also add the crying stops before the baby is placed into the ground. Um, now I'm not defending the actions of these characters whatsoever. I'm just trying to give context for those who haven't seen it or who haven't seen the episode in a while. I did rewatch it when researching this because I wanted to make sure I represented it accurately. Mm-hmm. The director of the episode, Kim Manners, called the shot of the burial, which was shown from the perspective of being in the ground, as oh. quote, the most awful shot of my career. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He he also said that he still wanted to approach its filming as seriously as possible because he felt that, even though that was the worst shot of his career, that the script was a classic. So, back to the episode. Scully views the body and remarks that it appears to be affected by every possible birth ne- defect known to man. She then suggests that the baby's defects could have been caused by e- inbreeding. Mulder insists that this would be impossible since the peacocks seem to live in an all-male household. Suspecting that the peacocks have kidnapped and potentially raped a woman, Mulder and Scully investigate their now-abandoned residence and discover blood, scissors, and a shovel on a table. 
Later, in retaliation for discovering that their home had been searched, the Peacocks enter Sheriff Taylor's home during the night and murder he and his wife. Uh, All the while the murder scene is going on, the song Wonderful, Wonderful by Johnny Mathis plays. It is truly creepy and a brilliant choice, in my opinion, because it really juxtaposes what we're seeing versus what we're hearing. Uh, Apparently, after reading the script, Johnny Mathis did not want his song used (laughs) in the episode. I bet. So production said, no problem. We'll just hire a sound alike to record a version of the song that we can use. Uh, And I do feel like it paid off because... It's just such an iconic moment in the series. Scully's lab tests indicate that the baby's parents were both members of the Peacock family. So believing that the three Peacock brothers must be holding the dead mother's, sorry, the dead baby's mother hostage, Mulder Scully and Deputy Barney Pastor go to arrest them. When Pastor breaks down the front door of the house, he is decapitated by a booby trap before the brothers tear him apart. Mulder and Scully then release the Peacock's pigs outside their pig farmers. So they release them, uh, which, of of course, was a great diversion because it lures them outside to try and wrangle the pigs back into their pen. Um, During this time, Mulder and Scully go back in to try and search the home because they do believe that they are looking for, obviously, a victim. Of course. They find a quadruple amputee hidden on a roller board that she is strapped to that is kept under a bed. This woman is revealed to be Mrs. Peacock, who is the mother of the three men and the mother of the deceased baby. Oh, boy. (laughs) Mrs. Peacock was presumed dead from a car accident several years prior. However, she did survive and her sons had found her at the time and brought her back to the house where she has been living on this rollerboard ever since. She reveals to Mulder and Scully that she nor anyone in the family can feel pain. The brothers soon realize that Mulder and Scully are inside the house and come in to attack them. The two youngest brothers withstand several gunshots before passing away. One of them is also impaled on another one of their booby traps. Afterwards, the agents discover that in the chaos, Mrs. Peacock and her eldest son have escaped in their car. The son has placed his mother in the trunk of their vintage Cadillac, which is a vehicle they had found abandoned years prior and taken as their own. The mother and son take off, planning to start a new family elsewhere. Cue once again, wonderful, wonderful, and let me tell you, Creeptown, USA, population me. (laughs) Now, some behind-the-scenes info on this episode. Unlike Johnny Mathis, Cadillac sent a thank-you letter to the production for using one of their vintage cars in the episode. Cat Hughes of The Companion wrote, quote, Perhaps the most frightening thing of all about home is its ending. Here, the series ventures into territory that many horror movies dare not. It doesn't resolve the issue. There is no happy ending. The good guys didn't win, and the bad guys are still out there, ready to, as Mrs. Peacock states, begin again. Oh. Fun fact. The names Andy Taylor and Barney, and also a reference to Mayberry, were obviously references to the Andy Griffith show in the script and were a fun nod to the small town nature of where the episode was set. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some feel that home presented a satirical view of traditional family values, showcasing a conflict between classic American values and modern culture. One writer, Sarah Stegall, uh, viewed the opening of the episode as a commentary on the ideology of the American dream, using the death of a child to, quote, 
speak to us of buried hopes and fears and the dark secrets that can hold a family together. A lot of very heady uh, articles were written about this episode. A lot of, yeah, very kind of like looking into the larger themes and whatnot. Uh, another thought, of course, was that the home, the town of home encompasses the traditional values of the nuclear family, only for it to be victimized by the Peacock family, who represent a darker side of uh, humanity. I also think the one concept that Scully actually brings up in the episode is quite interesting. Um, she talks about how these people are operating on the basest level, like the basest human le- level, that they're simply listening to their cells inside of their bodies, and those cells Uh, Their inherent want is to live and to replicate, and that human nature, arguably when forced, could feasibly seek out a way to make their cells replicate in whatever way possible, kind of as a more of a, again, for lack of a better term, cave people may have, for example. Um, I thought that that was an interesting thing to note. The concept of motherhood is also explored in the episode. Uh, Elise Ray Helford spoke in her book, Fantasy Girls, Gender in the New Universe of Science Fiction and Fantasy Television, that Mrs. Peacock functions as a being who has been reduced to all female functions by her sons. She is, quote, the grotesquely willing mother who has lost any sense of individual purpose other than to do anything for her children, which is also an interesting concept. Uh, Sonia Soraya of the AV Club wrote that Scully's sympathy for a mother that she imagines to be persecuted is then turned violently on its head to reveal a monster whose priorities are not quite so straightforward. Home was actually inspired by a few real-life events, including a story from Charlie Chaplin's autobiography about an encounter he had with a family in rural Wales. While touring with a musical theater production, Charlie Chaplin stayed at a miner's home in Wales. After dinner, the host introduced Chaplin to a disfigured, legless man named Gilbert who slept in a kitchen cupboard. Writer Glenn Morgan incorrectly recalled this as a totally limbless boy who was kept under a bed. Charlie Chaplin described the man as, quote, a half man with no legs, an oversized blonde, flat-shaped head, a sickening white face, a sunken nose, and a large mouth. He said the man would jump using his arms, um, the whole recounting was quite, uh, painted quite a picture. It obviously stuck with Glenn Morgan, um, who used this memory of the incident within the screenplay, although at his writing partner Wong's suggestion, they did change the character, of course, to be the boy's mother rather than another boy. The other source of inspiration for the episode and the story that I'm going to share with you in more detail in a moment is the 1992 award-winning documentary Brothers Keeper. This documentary follows the set, the story of a set of brothers, the Ward brothers, who were uh, who James Wong chose to be base the Peacock family on, while the name Peacock actually came from former neighbors of Glenn Morgan's parents. Now, when I learned about the Brothers Keeper documentary last week, I obviously had to watch it immediately. As I mentioned, the film tells the story of the Ward's four barely literate brothers who live in a shack on a farm that had been passed on through their family family for generations. The brothers drew international attention following the alleged murder of one of the brothers, William Ward, by his brother Delbert Ward. Delbert went through a lengthy court battle, which is captured in this documentary. Delbert was initially accused of killing William out of mercy. William had been quite ill for some time, and the theory was that Delbert suffocated him to put him out of his misery. 
But the problem that arises with this theory early on is that Delbert says the police told him to say that's what happened when it actually didn't. Delbert said, quote, they showed me how I done it. And with an estimated IQ of 68, you can obviously imagine how this was someone who could have been easily coerced and intimidated by the police. He said he killed his brother in the statement that he wrote, or excuse me, that he gave, but he never read the statement and it was never read to him. He was just told to sign something. He waived his rights, but he didn't fully know what that concept meant. He also said that they told him if he signed the papers, it would be easier on him. It should be noted that neither his police interrogation nor him giving his statement was recorded or filmed, so there's no proof either way, which is rather convenient. Of course. He said that he didn't have his glasses that day and that, quote, he can't read much anyway, even if he did have his glasses. The truth is that he couldn't read at all. This was him, I think, trying to save face in some way. Um, And the other issue is, is that when they did read him the statement in court, he didn't properly understand all of what he was hearing. Brother Roscoe Ward said that William died naturally. He had lost a lot of weight and was very unwell and wasn't well the week before his death. Brother Lyman Ward, who is, I have to say, the most heartbreaking of the brothers, in my opinion, doesn't really remember his interview with the police. He said he was all shook up and very nervous. He states, everything makes me nervous. I'm always nervous. I've always been nervous all my life. It seems very evident in this interview moment that this man obviously has a rather serious anxiety disorder, but I will get into that more later. There was allegedly a photo taken of William's body with a pillow over his face, but other people who had seen the crime scene claimed that there was no pillow over his face when the body was found. There were also inconsistencies with what the police say happened versus what the men said in their statements. Now, I know what you're thinking. What motive would there be for the police to potentially try to frame Delbert? Well, apparently, the land that the Ward brothers lived on had been sought after for some time. And there is a theory that maybe Delbert was being framed by the police as a favor to someone who wanted to buy that land and had a connection to law enforcement. One New York State city, uh, sorry, New York State police officer said Delbert admitted that he killed William, but after that, And this is the police officer's words. A lot of words were put in his mouth, for sure. Just fully admitting it. Mm Mm-hmm. Wowza. Now, in a turn that many did not see coming, Harry Thurston, a friend of the Ward family, say that William's body was held for extra days after his autopsy for them to do a rape kit. Why? Well to test for semen in William's body, as apparently William and Delbert often had sex with each other. Now, Harry Thurston says this is just how the wards lived. He also stated in his interview, this was also for context, 1992, that there there are a lot of men who have sex with each other in New York City, so what does it matter if these brothers did? He argued that it was simply a way of life for them, and while it wasn't for everyone, obviously, this is just what they did. For the record, sperm was found on William's pants and on his body. Uh, It should be noted that there was no heat in the home. There was never any heat in the home. So the boys who had lived there their entire lives, and these are men who are in their 60s at this point, 
uh, 50s, 60s, had slept together in beds for their entire lives for warmth throughout the winter. They just shared beds. Uh, That's just how they lived. So when this is kind of revealed, there is a shift in the prosecution's argument regarding the motive behind the alleged murder. Now the claim by the prosecution is that this was a sex-gone-wrong murder. Uh, They alleged that the two were having sex, a fight occurred, and the murder happened. During the trial, they put Lyman on the stand, and it is truly one of the most heartbreaking things I have ever watched in my life. This man is violently shaking. He's seeming to have a full-blown panic attack. I'm not sure if he was nervous due to the amount of people watching him, um, the fact that he had to to try and speak publicly, the pressure of the situation, all of the above. It doesn't really matter. Regardless, it honestly feels when you view it that they're torturing a man who simply did not have the capacity to testify in a court of law. Um, the lawyers have to ask him questions multiple times. They have to repeat them over and over for him to understand. But even then, it's kind of unclear if he really does comprehend what they're saying. He says on the stand that the statement that he gave and signed wasn't true. But eventually his nerves get so bad that the judge, Madison County Judge William F. O'Brien III, opts to call the trial for the day to give Lyman a break and said they would resume the next day. So the next day, the first question for Lyman is asked, and he starts uncontrollably sobbing and shaking on the stand. So Judge O'Brien immediately calls a 10-minute recess. It is so hard to watch. It's so sad. This man clearly has a severe anxiety disorder and is simply not mentally or emotionally competent to stand trial. One of the friends of the family uh, said on camera that Lyman is completely illiterate to the point that he couldn't even tell time. And they were asking him to read his statement out loud, which he obviously did not have the ability to do. If you ask me, it was absolutely nothing but cruel and ultimately pointless as it proved very little for their case. Which brings me to an interesting detail about this trial. The community, many of which were interviewed in the documentary, really rallied around the Ward brothers throughout the trial. While many of them were not overly accepting of their lifestyle, the general consensus of the locals was that Delbert was innocent, and though the wards lived in a atypical way, that they shouldn't be getting treated this way by law enforcement. Which in some ways kind of felt lovely and compassionate. I can't believe that I'm saying that a tolerance of outright incest is lovely, but here we are. (laughs) That's that's the step we took today. Yeah. <laughs> We've crossed over into something I never thought we'd talk about here. But again, we'll keep going. Um, I don't know. I guess because it was consensual. I don't know that I want to unpack this much further, but it is an interesting question. These men always uh, only had each other in the world. They had never been violent towards anyone each other or outside in the community. They were all in their 60s. They kept themselves It begs the question, is what they're doing wrong? I don't know how to answer it. It's such a conflicting concept to me. Um, Because when we think about the themes of incest, I'm going to go there. I guess I should have given a trigger warning there. But um, it's typically not two people of the same age who are living that way, if that makes sense. And consensual. Exactly. So it's just, it's an interesting, you know, debate. 
The other thing that we should also uh, note is that William was extremely ill at the time and most likely dying. So I think regardless of all of those topics, the biggest question that I have at this point in this story is what value is found in prosecuting the case? The family all maintained Delbert's innocence. The community believed that Delbert was innocent. There was no family members, no community members, absolutely no one seeking justice for William's death. So why were they going after him so hard? It feels to me like the theory about the land could hold some water. I couldn't find anything about that topic in addition So, unfortunately, I can't offer any more uh, insight into that. But to me, it just feels like there has to be something else going on. Because, again, there was nobody who was, like, demanding justice for this death of a very ill man. Now, the medical examiner takes the stand, and he is intense. Dr. Humphrey Germaniuk claims that the presence of petechiae in the corpse proved that it was probably a death due to asphyxiation. Yet he also says that he can, with no degree of certainty, say it was a homicide. And it should be noted that the death certificate was changed from inconclusive to murder only after Delbert confessed to murder. And Mm. when asked about that on the the stand, he kind of keeps talking around it. Delbert's defense lawyer, Ralph Cognetti, states to the medical examiner that they both know that petechiae can appear at that stage in decomposition for reasons other than asphyxiation, and the ME agrees, which is wild, because moments before on the stand, he cited the petechiae as the proof for the possible murder. Now, who who does the uh, defense bring in? None other than Dr. Cyril Weck. Remember him? We've talked about him many times on this show. Oh, my God. Yes. He testifies for the defense, saying that this does not appear to be asphyxiation as the cause of death. And in his opinion, the cause of death was heart failure, resulting in pulmonary edema. And uh, it should be noted, (laughs) Cyril Weck was mentioned in the JonBenet Ramsey case, the Anna Nicole Smith case. He did her son Daniel's autopsy and many more that I blanked on. Um, Let's just say this guy gets around. And let this be another moment to say this proves more than ever how desperately this country needs medical examiners. If you are someone who is, is thinks you can do the job, has an interest, and you j- graduate from that kind of school, we will attend your graduation. We've put it out there. We'll see if we get one in the next few years. So one thing that stood out to me in the court case was that the police said that William was strangled. But yet the statements that the men made said he was smothered. Now, obviously, the documentary didn't show the whole trial, so I hope that the defense pointed this out at some point. But to me, it's just interesting that the statements didn't even match what the police were saying. Now, as someone who speaks all the time about what a terrible move it is to call a defendant to the stand, a murder defendant, uh, I do think that it was the right move in this case, and I credit Delbert's lawyer with that. Um, Because I think it was important for the court to see his capabilities uh, mentally and emotionally. The prosecution asks him just so many questions about his TV watching habits. He suggests that because Delbert knew that Matlock was a defense lawyer on the show 
and that Delbert could remember what night of the week the show was on, that that proves something about him having better mental capacity than the defense were saying. But I just want to point out, and I'm not a mother, but I think it's safe to say that many children can remember the details about characters on TV shows and can probably also tell you what date or time they typically come on. So I just don't think that that really proved anything. It certainly didn't no. to me. The prosecution also says that William had been waking Delbert up late in the night to go to the bathroom a lot and that that may have been annoying Delbert. Didn't you want your own room? They asked Delbert. Delbert answered, sometimes. Again, the point the prosecution was trying to make just didn't feel like it was effective to me. Like it certainly right. was not motive for murder that he was having to get up multiple times in the night. And also it felt like Delbert truly didn't really feel one way about it or another. Defense lawyer Ralph Cognetti said in his clo closing statement, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase this because he uses some outdated terminology, but basically he felt that these were farmers that were living like, quote, animals that were viewed as stupid or ignorant, that had no friends in the world, and that they were basically an easy target. Uh, there is absolutely no proof that William died from murder other than Delbert's coerced confession. It really was the only piece of evidence, and even then, I don't know if I would call that evidence, after three weeks of testimony, the jury came back quickly with a verdict, not guilty. If I may just say, what an absolute waste of time. The entire crowd in the court stands on their feet applauding, celebrating that he was found innocent. It just felt like we were watching, again, these easily targeted uh, men be put through just emotional and mental torture for no good reason. As a follow-up, I will add that Delbert Ward died August 6th, 1998 at age 68, which was seven years after the trial for William's death. Brother Roscoe passed in 2007 at age 88. And Brother Lyman, the one who truly broke my heart, passed two months after Roscoe at age 85. What a wild story. Yeah, I think it's safe to say we took a turn. Never thought, again, never thought I would ever be, but again, we're all, you know, we're all adults here. And again, I think that these are uh, reasonable conversations to being, to have, to being had. Oh, being had. Yeah. To be fair, I'm not saying like, I <laughs> back it up. Um, I, I love that you're all over the place. I like that you're running the gamut of different, I don't know how else to say it, of, you you're showing a variety. Well, and guess what? The variety is about to continue to grow. Because I have one final two-parter that I am going to speak about. Uh, the two episodes, one is called Nisei, and the other is called 731. And they're intrinsically linked, so I'm going to talk about both of them together. But first... Nisei is the ninth episode of the third season of The X-Files. It premiered on November 24th, 1995. It was directed by David Nutter and was written by Chris Carter, Frank Spotnitz, and Howard Gordon. 731 is the tenth episode of the third season of The X-Files. It premiered on December 1st, 1995. It was directed by Rob Bowman and was written by Frank Spotnitz. Inspired by the atrocities committed by Unit 731, a Japanese research program during World War II, Nisei was originally intended to be a standalone mythology episode, but was lengthened into two separate episodes. The episode's title refers to the term Nisei, meaning the son or daughter of an Issei, which is uh, a couple born outside of Japan, 
Issei is a Japanese language term um, used to specify Japanese people who are the first generation to immigrate somewhere. Sure. Issei are born in Japan. Their children born in the new country are Nisei, and their grandchildren would be Sansei. So let's start by breaking down these episodes. Nisei opens in Knoxville, Tennessee, where a mysterious train car is left in a rail yard. After dark, a group of Japanese scientists enter the car and conduct an autopsy on an alien body. The scene is recorded and transmitted via satellite. Suddenly, a strike team storms the car and kills the scientists, taking the alien corpse away in a body bag. Fox Mulder later purchases an edited video of the autopsy. He believes it's authentic, but Dana Scully is, as usual, skeptical. (laughs) When the agents go to Allentown, Pennsylvania to track down the distributor of the tape, they find him murdered. At the scene, they pursue and capture a Japanese man, Kazuo Sakurai, who is identified as a high-ranking diplomat. Walter Skinner, Mulder and Scully's boss, who I've mentioned is played by Mitch Pelegi, you can absolutely get it, appears and orders Sakurai released. Before doing so, Mulder searches his briefcase, which he did not return to the authorities as he was supposed to, and finds a, a list of mutual UFO network members and satellite images of a ship. The lone gunmen identify the ship as the Talapus, a salvage vessel docked in Newport News, Virginia. Meanwhile, Sakurai is killed by an assassin called the Red-Haired Man. Now, what is the lone gunman, you're thinking? Well, the lone gunman is a trio of fictional characters, Richard Ringo Langley, Melvin Froicki, and John Fitzgerald Byers, who appeared in many episodes of The X-Files. They are friends of Mulder, and they are described as, quote, countercultural patriots. They are intense conspiracy theorists, government watchdogs, and computer hackers, Uh, who often help Mulder and Scully. They produce a news publication called The Lone Gunman, to which Mulder, of course, was a loyal subscriber. None of them have day jobs, and they rely on financial backers who believe in their cause and the revenue generated by the subscriptions to their paper. So back to the episode. Just go with me. Scully investigates the MUFON group, discovering several women who claim to recognize her from her abduction experience. Yes, I know what you're thinking. Scully was abducted? Heck yeah, she was. (laughs) But was it by aliens or a secret branch of the government? I don't have enough time to get into all of that right now, but let's just say all of these women have similar implants to Scully's and they inform her that they're all dying of cancer. Meanwhile, Mulder goes to the Newport News shipyard and searches the Talapus... Talapus? Talapus, I'm going to say. As instructed by the lone gunman guys, armed men soon arrive and scour the ship, but Mulder does manage to escape. That night, he discovers a warehouse where a craft is being fumigated by a hazmat team. He believes the craft to be of alien origin, recovered by the Talapus. Skinner later confronts Mulder over the briefcase, which is now in Scully's position, possession, the absence of which has caused an international incident with Japan. Consequently, he refuses to assist Mulder any further with the case. Mulder then meets with Senator Richard Matheson, who gives him details on the autopsy and links it with the larger conspiracy of alien-human hybrids, which is something that was mentioned in the Erlenmeyer flask earlier, I will remind you. Mulder investigates further, discovering that the the Japanese scientists were members of the notorious Unit 731 during World War II, like Victor Klemper. They were recruited by the U.S. government to develop alien-human hybrids. Mulder believes that the scientists killed on videotape were working on a secret railway transporting test subjects. 
Now, after Scully shares her MUFON findings with Mulder, she runs her implant through the FBI labs to gather technological information about it. She also analyzes the alien autopsy video, realizing that one of the scientists seen in the video, Dr. Ishimaru, experimented on her during her abduction. I guess she is alluding there that maybe it wasn't aliens and it was actually a government conspiracy, but we don't have time to get into all of that. (laughs) Meanwhile, one of the scientists, oh, sorry. Meanwhile, Mulder goes to West Virginia and tracks down the secret train car. He watches a group of Japanese men place what seems to be an alien human subject on board. Meanwhile, another Japanese scientist, Dr. Shiro Zama, waits for the train at a station in Ohio where he is forced to board after his bodyguard is killed by the red-haired man in the restroom. The red-haired man follows Zama aboard the train, which is then handed for none other than Vancouver, Canada. Hey! Mulder tracks the train to the Ohio station, but learns it is just left when he arrives. Meanwhile, Scully goes to her apartment and is met by X. Who's X? Well, he kind of took over for Deep Throat. Again, providing information, he'd show up from time to time. They put a, an X in tape on a window and he'd show, it doesn't, there's not enough time. He warns her to keep Mulder from getting on the train as the scientists are aware of his presence. Scully calls Mulder, who has managed to drive ahead of the train and is just about to jump on the moving train from a bridge. And despite Scully's pleas, Mulder jumps as that train speeds past below. Fun fact, after watching the video bought by Mulder of the alien autopsy, Scully criticizes it, citing the real-life 1995 alien autopsy video, which was, of course, a hoax made by Ray Santilli, a British video producer. Coincidentally, Fox, the network, not the Mulder, ended up re-airing the alien autopsy video the night following this episode's original airing, and yes, I want you to know I do remember it, and yes, I absolutely also recorded that onto a VHS tape. So... That was the story started in Nisei, and it now continues in the next episode, 731. I promise you I'll get through this as quickly as possible. I know it's confusing. So, it just all pays off later. Anyway, in Perky, West Virginia, a group of U.S. Army soldiers arrive at an abandoned leprosy research compound, seizing most of the patients. One patient, Escalante, hides beneath a trap door during the arrival and follows the group to a secluded field nearby. Here, he watches as the soldiers shoot the other patients, who are all apparent alien-human hybrids, as they fall into a mass grave. Mulder loses his cell phone after jumping on top of that moving train, losing contact with Scully. When questioned by Scully, X tells her to analyze her implant, saying it will give her answers not only about the train and her sister Melissa's murder, because yes, her sister Melissa was murdered at this point. Uh, But again, I digress. Meanwhile, Mulder enters the train, finding the secret rail car is quarantined and protected by a security system. He searches for Dr. Shiro Zama. Uh, He enlists the train conductor for help. In Zama's compartment, they find handwritten journals in Japanese. However, elsewhere on the train, the red-haired man intercepts and strangles Zama. Scully sees Sean Pendrell, another special agent at the FBI that Mulder and Scully occasionally consult with for cases. Pendrel tells her that the implant contains highly advanced technology that can replicate the brain's memory functions and enable someone to know to know a person's very thoughts. The manufacturer of the chip was none other than Shiro Zama, who created the implant at the West Virginia compound. So Scully travels there, where she meets a group of deformed patients who have managed to elude, elude the death squads. Escalante tells her that the patients were experimented on by Zama, who departed long ago since then, 
Uh, but at this point, death squads have been set a- setting out to massacre anyone who had been involved in these experiments. Again, you'll note later, all of this pays off. Escalante shows her the mass grave, but he is then killed when U.S. Army soldiers arrive to capture Scully, who is then delivered to the First Elder. The First Elder is a high-ranking member of the Syndicate. The Syndicate is a shadow government group who's been tasked with covering up the proof of extraterrestrial life. This is very simplified. I'm almost through this, I swear to God. Mulder then returns to the rail car, seeing its door ajar. An alien human test subject is locked in a room inside. The red-haired man attacks Mulder, causing the conductor to lock them both in the car. The red-haired man claims to work for the NSA and says that a bomb in the car has been triggered after he gained entry with Zama's passcode. Mulder doesn't believe him, but is called by Scully on the red-haired man's cell phone, who is in with the first elder in a similar rail car, and does tell Mulder that unwitting subjects, including herself, were operated on by Zama on the secret railway, with the alien abduction theory used as a smokescreen. She also confirms there is a bomb in the car, and believes the quarantined patient is infected with hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic fever. She fears that thousands will die from the disease if the car explodes. Mulder finds the bomb in the ceiling. The car is disconnected from the rest of the train on a remote rail siding. Mulder questions the red-haired man, who says the patient is immune to biological warfare. Zama tried to sneak the patient out of the country, but the government would rather see it destroyed than let their research fall into Japanese hands and that's why the red-haired man was sent to kill them both. Mulder, however, believes that the patient is an alien-human hybrid, and with help from Scully, he un- he successfully unlocks the door of the rail car, but is knocked unconscious by the red-haired man. The red-haired man uh, is about to leave. X appears, shoots him. They then realize the bomb is about to explode. There's not enough time to save both Mulder and secure the alien-hybrid-human patient, so X decides to save Mulder and carries the still-unconscious Mulder out of there shortly before the bomb explodes. After recovering from his injuries, Mulder attempts to find information on the rail car, but isn't able to do so. Scully returns the the journal that was found on the car, but Mulder realizes it's a rewritten substitute. Meanwhile, the real journal is translated in a shadowy room as none other than the cigarette-smoking man watches. Some behind-the-scenes info. I promise you, I know that that was a lot of detail that didn't felt feel necessary, but it does all connect. So that's why you had to slog through it. But we're through it now. So some fun facts. The production of 731 involved several stunts, including the explosion of a retired railway car. This episode also earned the director of photography, John Bartley, an American Society of Cinematographers Award nomination, and it secured the director, Rob Bowman, the job of also directing the series' subsequent film adaptation, The X-Files. Writer Frank Spotnitz's inspiration for the episode came from having read an article in the New York Times on the war crimes committed by Unit 731 of the Imperial Japanese Army, after which the episode was named. The unit was responsible for human subject research on both prisoners of war and civilians. Further inspiration was drawn from the films North by Northwest and The Train, which was basically uh, the idea for the train car setting, which was not a part of the real-life experimentation that was going on. The tagline for this episode, which was usually always the truth is out there, was switched to apology is policy. And that was always very exciting when you were watching the show because you'd be like glued to the theme song and the opening credits each week to see is the tagline going to say the truth is out there like it always does or is it going to be changed to something else? 
Other changes that happened over the years were, of course, trust no one in the Erlenmeyer flask episode, deny everything in the series two, season two, episode six episode, Ascension. Um, usually there was between one and three episodes per season where they would change the tagline to something else. And again, it was always very exciting. The scene at the beginning of the episode with Mulder clinging to the side of the train car was filmed using a harness cabled uh, across the top of the car, which was then removed digitally during post-production. David Duchovny did perform this stunt himself without the use of a stunt double. Um, Another chilling detail was that 25 masked actors, who were mostly children, were laid over prop bodies for the scene with the masked grave. Which has to have been some sort of trauma for those children. I really hope they told them that it was a pile of sleeping people or something, anything else. But I truly yep. do not know. Yeah. Seven, seven different cameras were used by director Rob Bowman when filming the train car explosion, which I want to say is excessive. Impressive that he was given that budget. 45 gallons of gasoline, 120 black powder bombs were also used for the effect. Um, the car had been obtained cheaply from Vancouver-based BC Rail and had been considered scrap due to being being bent. After the explosion was recorded, a bell from the train was recovered quite a far distance from the site by the physical effects supervisor Dave Gautier, who had it polished and engraved with a message for director Bowman. And now, the real-life inspiration behind these two episodes of The X-Files. I have to give a general trigger warning, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, because what I'm about to describe is accounts of human experimentation that I will say are disturbing at best. I want you to know I have kept out a lot of the details because they are so truly horrifying. I don't feel like I need to speak them um, or traumatize anyone else. So I'm not going to be sitting in any of this for very long, but I just want to say what I'm about to explain is quite disturbing and it has been very watered down. I also want to say uh, there is a lot of Japanese uh, and Chinese names and words, which I have written out phonetically, but I'm not a perfect human. And I apologize because I am certain I will probably mess some of them up. I'm doing the best I can. Um, Finally, (laughs) I just wrote, I also just want to say one more time. These details are the worst I have ever come across researching an episode of this show. And that says something. (laughs) Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're braced. Here we go. Unit 731 was short for Manchu Detachment 731 and was also known as the Camo Detachment and the Ishi Unit, which was a Convert Biological and Chemical Warfare Research and Development Unit of the Imperial Japanese Army that engaged in lethal human experimentation and biological weapons manufacturing during the Second Sino-Japanese War which lasted from 1937 to 1945, and during World War II. Some estimate the death count of the unit to be between 200 and 300,000 people. Oh, my God. But others cite it being over 500,000 people. It was based in the Pingfang district of Harbin, and it had active branch offices throughout China and Southeast Asia. Unit 731 was responsible for some of the most notorious war crimes committed by the Japanese armed forces. Experiments included disease injections, controlled dehydration, biological weapons testing, hypobaric pressure chamber testing, vivisection, which for those who don't know, is basically performing surgery while someone is awake and not in any way sedated or nothing is given is the point. Um, 
They also did experiments involving organ procurement, amputation, and standard weapons testings. Victims included not only kidnapped men, women, including pregnant women and children, but also babies that were born from the systemic rapes that were perpetrated by the staff inside the compound. Victims came from different nationalities, with the majority being Chinese and a significant minority being Russian. I read one report that said it was around 70% Chinese and 30% Russian. Additionally, Unit 731 produced biological weapons that were used in areas of China not occupied by Japanese forces, which included Chinese cities and towns, water sources, and fields. It should be noted, none of the inmates of Unit 731 survived. Most died within two months of arriving, though as we know, many babies were born there, so that means that some women would have had to have lived as long as 9 to 12 months, as we know they would need 9 months to carry a baby to term. It should also be noted that in the final moments of the Second World War, any of the prisoners that were there at that moment were killed as a way to conceal evidence. Now, I know what you're thinking. Even the babies? Well, let me tell you, there were so many different horrific experiments done on babies, I will not be repeating any of them. But the bottom line is, it was absolutely, I don't have an adjective for it, um, throughout the time it existed. And in the end, not one person survived. Which is also mirrors, again, the details in the X-Files episode with the mass graves that at the, when they had kind of been found out that these death squads were going around to kill everyone. Again, just drawing back the parallel. This was officially known as the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department of the Kwantung Army. The facility itself was built in 1935 as a replacement for the Zongma Fortress, and Shiro Ishii and his team used it to expand their capabilities. The program received generous support from the Japanese government until the end of the war in 1945. <sighs> While Unit 731 researchers were arrested by Soviet forces and tried at the December 1949 Kabarak war crime trials, those who were captured by the United States were secretly given immunity in exchange for providing the data gathered during their human experiments to the U.S. government. Oh That's God. right. The U.S. government covered up human experimentations and also handed these research researchers stipends in return for their research findings. The Americans co-opted the researchers' bioweapons information and experience for use in their own biological warfare program, much like what has been done by the U.S. government with Nazi German researchers in Operation Paperclip, which was the inspiration for another X-Files episode entitled Paperclip, which I will be covering in the Patreon episode that we will record later tonight. Hey. Now jumping back for a second. Japan started its biological weapons program in the 1930s partially because biological weapons were banned by the Geneva Convention in 1925. The Japanese reasoned that this ban must have verified that these had effectiveness as a weapon. Their logic was not wrong. Japan's occupation of Manchuria began in 1931 after the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, and Japan decided to build Unit 731 in Manchuria because the occupation not only gave the Japanese an advantage of separating the research station from their island, but also gave them access to as many Chinese individuals as they wanted for use as human experimental subjects as they viewed the Chinese as no-cost research subjects. Uh... And they hoped that it, they could use this advantage to lead the war in, sorry, the world in biological warfare. 1932, Surgeon General Shiru Ishii 
who was the chief medical officer of the Imperial Japanese Army and a protege of Army Mister Minister Sadao Araki, was placed in command of the Army Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory. Ishii organized a secret research group, the Togo Unit, for chemical and biological experimentation in Manchuria. Ishii had proposed the creation of a, bi a Japanese biological and chemical research unit in 1930 after a two-year study trip abroad on the grounds that Western powers were developing their own programs, so they needed to get ahead of the game. One of Ishii's main supporters inside the army was Colonel Chikahiko Koizumi, who later served as Japan's health minister from 1941 to 1945. Koizumi had joined a secret poison gas research committee in 1915 during World War I, where he and other Imperial Japanese Army officers were impressed by the successful German use of chlorine gas at the Second Battle of Ypres, in which the Allies suffered 5,000 deaths and 15,000 wounded as a result of that chemical attack. Unit Togo was set into motion in the Zongma Fortress, a prison and experimentation camp in Bayin, a village 100 kilometers or 62 miles south of Harbin on the South Manchuria Railway. The prisoners brought to Zongma included common criminals, captured bandits, anti-Japanese partisans, as well as political prisoners, and then people that they just rounded up on made-up charges. Prisoners were generally well-fed on a diet of rice or wheat, meat, fish, and occasionally even alcohol in order for them to be in normal health at the beginning of the experiments. Then over the course of several days, prisoners were eventually drained of their blood and deprived of nutrients and water. Their deteriorating health was recorded. Some were vivisected. Others were deliberately infected with plague bacteria and other microbes. A prison break in the autumn of 1934, which jeopardized the facility's secrecy, and an explosion in 1935, which was believed to be sabotaged, led Shiro Ishii to shut down that Zongma fortress. He then received authorization to move to Pingfang, approximately 24 kilometers or 15 miles south of Harbin, to set up his new, much larger facility. So in 1936, Emperor Hirohito issued a decree authorizing the expansion of the unit and its integration into the Kwantung Army as the Epidemic Prevention Department. It was divided at that time into the Ishii Unit and the Wakamatsu Unit, and from 1940 on, the units were known collectively as, I mentioned before, the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department of the Kwantung Army, or Unit 731 for short. Chinese prisoners were made to march on the plains of Manchuria for po poison gas experiments on humans, which sounds awful, but it makes the rest of the stuff they did there look humane. In addition to the establishment of the unit, the decree also called for the creation of additional biological warfare development unit called the Kwantung Army Military Horse Epidemic Prevention Workshop, later referred to as Manchuria Unit 100, and a chemical warfare de de development unit called the Kwantung Army Technical Testing Department, later referred to as Manchuria Unit 516. After the Japanese invasion of China in 1937, um, Sister chemical and biological warfare units were founded in major Chinese cities and referred to as the Epidemic Prevention and Water Supply Units. All of these units comprised Ishii's network, which at its height in 1939 oversaw over 10,000 personnel. Medical doctors and professor professors from Japan were attracted to join the unit, both by the rare opportunity to conduct human experimentation and the Army's strong financial backing. Yeah, that's right. A special project, project codenamed Maruta used human beings for experiments, 
Test subjects were gathered from the surrounding population and referred to as logs, used in such context as how many logs fell when they passed. Uh, the term originated apparently as a joke on the part of the staff because the official cover story for the facility given to local authorities was that it was a lumber mill. However, according to a junior unified, uniformed civilian employee of the Imperial Japanese Army working in Unit 731, the project was internally called Holzklotz, which was German for log. In a further parallel, the corpse, corpses of sacrificed subjects were disposed of by incineration. Researchers published some of their results in peer-reviewed journals, and they wrote as though the research had actually been conducted on non-human primates, so they called them Manchurian monkeys or long-tailed monkeys, when, of course, this research was being done on Chinese people, which is disgusting. <clears throat> One professor uh, was there and watched footage of human experiments and executions from 731. Uh, yes, he, sorry, he was studying during the war, but he viewed footage while he was studying. And he later testified about what he described as the playfulness of the experimenters. This is a quote. Some of the experiments had nothing to do with advancing the capability of germ warfare or of medicine. There is such a thing as professional curiosity. What would happen if we did such and such? What medical purpose was served by performing and studying beheadings? None at all. That was just playing around. Professional people, too, like to play. I just want to say, that whole statement was impossibly glib and absolutely terrifying when you get into the details of what they were doing and what that man viewed to give that rave review. As stated before, prisoners were injected with diseases that were disguised as vaccinations to study their effects. They were given uh, venereal diseases. Male and female prisoners were deliberately infected with syphilis and gonorrhea and then studied. They also um, escalated that from at first injecting them with the diseases from then just forcing them to have sex with each other to infect each other in front of everyone because vile. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was one video that a former member said again, in, in, in terms of the vivisections, that they also did it to a pregnant woman. The details of this, again, I am only touching on the the, the lightest of the details. Um, they would amputate limbs in order to, uh, order to study blood loss. They would reattach those limbs to the other side of the person's body or to someone else. Again, the details are just so sickening, and I will never unsee them, and I don't want anyone else to read about this, even though I think it's important to learn about history. This is just, again, I was shocked that I never learned any of this in school. Obviously, this is like mirroring what was going on um, during the Holocaust in Germany, but but again, I never had any knowledge of any of this. Um, one surgeon in the Imperial Japanese Army said that uh, when they performed vivisections on the captives, they were all for practice rather than research, and that those practices were just routine among Japanese doctors stationed in China during the war. Holy shit, this is fucking nightmare fuel. How do we never learn about this? And why is everybody speaking about it so matter-of-factly? Why is that the thing? I can't answer that. The New York Times interviewed a former member of Unit 731 who insisted on anonymity. I wonder why. This was a former Japanese medical assistant who recounted his first experience in dissecting a live human. Um, this person had been deliberately infected with the plague for the purpose of developing plague bombs for war, which again does mirror the X-Files episode that we know that that person had been infected with something, the idea being that then you could 
uh, kill that person and the gas would be re- released infecting people, which also sure. kind of comes back to the Erlenmeyer flask as well. Um, he described the vivisection, which I'm not going to get into detail with, but I just, there was one quote that just chilled me to my core. He said, quote, this was all in a day's work for the surgeons, but it really left an impression on me because it was my first time. It's just, the again, the casualness that anybody that I've heard speak of the whole atrocities that were happening, it, it again, it, it has been keeping me up at night. Um, there was also research involving bio-warfare weapons uh, that they wanted to use against the Chinese people, both military and civilian throughout World War II. Here's one thing I never knew about. Plague-infected infle- fleas that were bred in the laboratories of 731 and Unit 1644 were spread by low-flying airplanes over Chinese cities in 1940 and 1941. These operations killed tens of thousands of people with the bubonic plague, um, which, again, can't believe I never heard about it. Another one of these expeditions involved spreading typhoid and paratyphoid germs into wells, marshes, and houses in the cities, as well as infusing them into snacks that were distributed to the Chinese locals. (sighs) Epidemics broke out shortly after to the elation of many researchers who then concluded that paratyphoid fever was, quote, the most effective of the pathogens. At least 12 large-scale bioweapon field trials were carried out, and at least 11 Chinese cities were attacked with biological agents. An attack on Chandi in 1941 reportedly led to approximately 10,000 biological casualties and 1,700 deaths among ill-prepared Japanese troops, in most cases due to cholera. They also performed tests using uh, smallpox, botulism, and other diseases. During biological bomb experiments, researchers dressed in protective suits and would examine dying victims. Um, They would infect food supplies and clothing and then drop them by airplane into areas of China that weren't occupied by Japanese forces, trying to look like it was sending aid. But of course, they were all infected with deliberately with plagues. Um, poisoned food and poisoned candy were given to victims. Uh, they used anthrax. They used cholera. And these were estimated to have killed at least 400,000 Chinese civilians. Ow. Tua tula, tularemia, also known as rabbit fever, was also tested on the civilians during that time. During the final months of World War II, Unit 731 planned to use kamikaze pilots to infest San Diego, California with the plague, an operation that was codenamed Cherry Blossoms at Night. The plan was scheduled to launch on September 22, 1945, but Japan surrendered five weeks earlier, and holy shit, oh my god, I am shooked. How did we not learn about this in history class? They almost infected San Diego with the fucking plague. They had the plan and the means. I mean, I know we're all thinking it. Can you imagine if they did it? I don't know if we'd be having this conversation in this way in this place. I think it's safe to say we wouldn't be. Jesus. Be a much different world. Much different world. Um, okay. A few more details. We're almost there. Uh, it should be noted, human targets were used to test grenades. Flamethrowers f- were tested on people. Um, shrapnel bombs, explosive bombs, bayonets, knives, 
there was experiments done to determine the relationship between temperature, burns, human sur- and human survival. People were hung upside down until they died, crushed, electrocuted, dehydrated with hot fans, placed in centrifuges, and then spun until they died. They were injected with animal blood, um, exposed to lethal doses of x-rays. Uh, there was chemical weapon tests inside gas chambers. People were injected with seawater. The list just goes on and on, and it really didn't feel like there was a lot of rhyme or reason to it, much like that wonderful gentleman talked earlier about the playfulness done in the testing. Um, right. Some of the tests have been described as psychopathically sadistic with no conceivable military application. No shit. Um, prisoners would arrive at night in motor vehicles paint- painted black with a ventilation hole but no windows. They would pull up at the main gates and one of the drivers would go to the guard room to report to the guard. The guard would then telephone to the special team in the inner prison. The prisoners would be transported through a secret tunnel dug under the facade of the central building to the inner prisons. One building housed women and children, the other men. Once at the inner prison, they would take samples of the prisoners' blood and stool and test their kidney function and collect other physical data. Uh, They wanted to have a baseline, I guess, for their experiments. Um, They would lose their names at this time and were given a three-digit number, which they would retain until their death. When they died after experiments, a clerk of the first division would simply strike their name off an index card take off their handcuffs, and put them on a new arrival. There was at least one recorded incident of a friendly social interaction between prisoners and Unit 731 staff. Technician Nawakata Ishibashi interacted with two female prisoners. One was a 21-year-old Chinese woman, the other a Soviet woman who was 19. Ishibashi asked where she came from and learned she was from the Ukraine. The prisoners told him that they had not seen their faces in a mirror since being captured and begged him to get them one. He snuck them a mirror through a hole in a cell door. And is this supposed to be a cute story or supposed to make us think that that technician had humanity? Because I disagree. Yeah. Also, it should be noted that members of the test staff themselves were not immune from becoming test subjects. Yes, that's correct. Uh, One employee became infected with the bubonic plague as a result of plague bacteria. Um, He was then vivisected. Uh, Additionally, other people would get accidentally infected with the different diseases. So then they'd be like, well, you got it anyway. Let's go do these other horrific things to you that we're doing to everybody else. So that's the other thing about like the true callousness. I mean, obviously callousness, that's a wild understatement. But it's just interesting to me that it was like when their own researchers, workers, et cetera, also got sick, it was just like, well, you're no longer a human to us. So we're just going to use you now, which is chilling. Mm. Escape was an impossibility. Um, there was a three meter high brick wall surrounding the complex and a dry moat filled with electrified wire. Uh, again, the whole place was just a house of horrors. And that is an understatement. Among the individuals in Japan after its 1945 surrender after the war was Lieutenant Colonel Murray Sanders. Okay. He arrived very, uh, via an American ship called the Sturgis in September 1945. He was a highly regarded microbiologist and a member of America's Military Center for Biological Weapons. His duty was to investigate biological warfare activity. And at the time of his arrival, he had no knowledge of what Unit 731 was. And it wasn't until he finally threatened the Japanese by saying he was going to bring the Russians, the Soviets at the time, into the picture, that then they were like, okay, well, hold on, don't do that. We don't want to get like prosecuted under the Soviet legal system because it's pretty harsh. So if you're going to threaten us with that, why don't I just give you this manuscript describing what we've been doing here? 
So Sanders took this information to General Douglas MacArthur, who was the supreme commander of the Allied powers at the time and was responsible for rebuilding Japan during the Allied occupations. He struck a deal then with Japanese informants and secretly granted immunity to the physicians of Unit 731, including their leader, in exchange, of course, for providing America, uh, but not the other wartime alleys, with the research that they had done with their human experiments. Uh, the American occupation monitored the activities of former unit members, including reading and censoring their mail, etc. The Americans believed that this research data was very valuable and didn't want other nations, particularly the Soviet Union, to acquire that data on biological weaponry. It wasn't until 2002 in Changdi, China, the site of the plague flea bombing, uh, when an international symposium on the crimes of biological, sorry, bacteriological warfare uh, was held. It estimated the amount of people slaughtered by the Imperial Japanese Army um, was around 580,000 at that time. Uh, on August 28th of that year, the Tokyo District Court ruled that Japan had committed biological warfare in China and consequently killed many people. It's nice for it to take decades to have that kind of admission. Uh, but it wasn't perfect because while they acknowledged that they had been involved in biological warfare, as of 2011, the Japanese government had made no official acknowledgement of the atrocities that had been committed in Unit 731 and rejected the Chinese government's requests for DNA samples to identify human remains, including skulls and bones, that had been found in a mass grave that was near an army medical school. The Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal heard only one reference to Japanese experiments uh, on Chinese uh, civilians. This took place in August 1946. It was instigated by David Sutton, who was an assistant to the Chinese prosecutor. The Japanese Defense Council argued that the claim was vague and uncorroborated, and it was ultimately dismissed for lack of evidence. The subject was not pursued further. Apparently, they claim that David Sutton was unaware of Unit 731's activities. I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, his reference to it at the trial is believed to have been accidental, which doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Um, German physicians were brought to trial, obviously, for the crimes that they committed during World War II. Their crimes were publicized. But the U.S. government concealed information about the Japanese, as we know. Uh, critics, of course, have argued that racism would have led to this double standard, um, the viewpoint being that white people were killed by the Germans and that was more valuable than uh, the Chinese people who were killed by the Japanese. That is, again, a speculation that people have made, obviously. Um, there was a U.S. tribunal held in Yokohama in 1948 that did indict nine Japanese physician professors and medical students for uh, the vivisections that they had done, but those were because they were done upon captured American pilots. Two professors were sentenced to death and the others 15 to 20, 20 years imprisonment. And I want to remind you, the only reason that that happened was because, of course, they were white Americans that had been killed and the mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of Chinese, no one has had any sort of uh, price paid for at that point. So the Japanese doctors and army commanders who per perpetuated, sorry, perpetrated Unit 731 received sentences during that Soviet trial I referenced earlier, and their sentences ranged from two to 25 years in a Siberian labor camp. Um, the United States didn't acknowledge those trials, branding them communist propaganda. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. 
The sentences doled out to the Japanese perpetrators were unusually lenient by Soviet standards, and all but two of the defendants returned to Japan by the 1950s. One prisoner died in prison, the other committed suicide while in prison. Um, in addition to accusations of propaganda, the U.S. also asserted that the trials were only to serve as a distraction from the Soviet treatment of several hundred thousand Japanese prisoners of war. Meanwhile, the, uh, the Soviet... The Soviets asserted that the U.S. had given, of course, Japanese the Japanese diplomatic leniency in exchange for their information. The accusations of both are, were true. It is believed that the Japanese had also secretly given information to the Soviets. So this is the joke. They played the Americans. So it was like, okay, don't you give us the immunity and we won't share this with anybody else. Of course they did. Why were we trusting them? They were the ones doing all this heinous shit. Why would you believe them to be, like, a good deal? I mean, am I crazy here? Anyway, from 1948 <laughs> to 1958, less than 5% of the documents from Japan were transferred onto microfilm and stored in the U.S. National Archives before being shipped back to Japan. I don't even know what to say. They granted these people immunity. They wanted all of the information. They took 5% of it and then just gave it back. I don't get any of it. <laughs> Japanese biological warfare operations were by far the largest during World War II and possibly with more people and resources than France, Hungary, Italy, Poland, and the Soviet Union combined between the world wow. wars. It's just unbelievable to me, again, that I knew nothing about this until researching this. Right. Uh, in 2018, Japan disclosed the names of 3,607 members of Unit 731, the information uh, was from the country's national archives. Japanese history textbooks usually contain reference to Unit 731, but do not go into detail about the allegations that went on there. Now, mm. I didn't think I could leave this episode on such a down note as it's been such a joy for me to get to do this episode. So I wanted to close instead with a fun X-Files story. In Season 3, Episode 17 of the show, a super fan of the series appeared as an extra. In this episode called Pusher, Mulder and Scully are called to investigate a case involving a man who goes by the pseudonym Pusher, who is seemingly capable of bending people to his will. But the really exciting moment of this episode is when, in one single scene, you can see none other than a young Mr. Dave Grohl walk through the background. Paired with hey! his wife at the time, Jennifer Youngblood, he's looking at his watch, acting natural, and if you blink, you will miss it. I will post a screen grab on our socials of his moment in the episode, but I guess this makes sense, him being a fan of the show. The name Foo Fighters comes from a World War II era nickname for unidentified flying objects spotted by Allied pilots, and he chose it because of the books he had been reading at the time the band began. He later said that he'd probably preferred to give his band a better name, but nonetheless, Foo Fighters was memorable enough that it stuck. It should also be noted, the Foo Fighters music has also appeared alongside the Nick Cave track Red Right Hand on a compilation album produced by Mark Snow, the composer of the iconic X-Files theme music. It was released, and, and then, after Dave's cameo, a month later, the album Songs in the Key of X, music from and inspired by the X-Files, featured a Foo Fighters song, which was a cover of the Gary Newman song, Down in the Park. Later, a song from the Foo Fighters' 1997 album The Color and the Shape would be used in the end credits of the first X-Files movie. The song Walking After You was re-recorded 
specifically for the movie and was released as a part of the soundtrack album as well. Regardless, the synchronicity of Dave Grohl organically working his way into an episode of our show just feels like kismet and is a beautiful way to cleanse the palate after listing horrific war crimes. I have been absolutely jazzed researching this episode, even with the trauma I endured in that last bit, and I hope all of you enjoyed listening to this as much as I loved putting it together. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Lauren Spooky Ash. Uh, I've said it before. I'll say it again. You are the cutest human alive. No, that. thank you kindly. Uh, so things took a real turn yeah. uh, in that portion. Uh, I'm going to need some time to gather my notes yep. and myself uh, before we head into the next one. So we're going to take one more quick break. Uh, so hit the can, stay hydrated, and we will be right back to share our final thoughts on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. <laughs> Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Uh, (laughs) It might just be uh, seven solid minutes of me going, ah, because I... Ah, I'm at, a lo- I'm at a loss for words. Yeah. I took a lot of notes. Don't know how much sense they make. Um, especially because I wrote down uh, names and things I found funny. So let me know. Like, let, I got to tell you, uh, there wasn't a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, not a lot of haha. Not know, a lot like of haha. The fact, the fact that my uh, first statement on here is human vivisection? Jesus. <laughs> It's not something right you hear a lot. It's not something you hear about a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I get, oh, again, it's just going to be me. Oh, God. We're just going to have to get through it, and we're going to hope for the best uh, with these. Um, Mulder being a skilled profiler and a believer and Scully being a skeptic, I wrote, they could not be more like us. I know. It really <laughs> is true. Which is amazing, because I should be saying we're, we could not be more like them. Because they came bef- before us, but did they? Come on. I Come mean, on. We've been like this since the 80s. So, yep. You know. Uh, uh, coming into episode one, I, I, of course, because we've never done something like this, I did not know what to expect. Your narration was such a delightful surprise. 
getting close to the mic, getting a tone. Yep. I could not have been happier. Uh, I immediately wrote down, I already want to do more of these episodes. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I'm that glad. was pre-war crime, but I'm still on board. Yeah, listen, still I mean, board. hopefully not a lot of war crimes covered in the rest of the episodes of that show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just know I wrote Deep Throat. Ha ha. How old are you, fucking child? Uh, you mentioned Skinner, a.k.a. Mitch Pelegi. He was, of course, none other than Sam Campbell, a.k.a. Mary's dad on Supernatural. That's right. That's right. He had a... Uh, also was on uh, Walker. Oh, okay. The the new the new Walker, which I didn't get through all of it yet. He just has a real daddy vibe in X Files. He does. Yeah. He well, I'm I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking him from Supernatural or Walker. Uh, yep. Yep. He's gonna let you know when you've been bad. <laughs> <laughs> True. That was his literal job on the X-Files. I mean, he was their boss. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, well, I didn't know I felt that way. Um, you said, can he get it? Or he can get it. And I concur. Um, oh, God, your passion throughout this was addictive. And you are just the cutest human alive. Um, oh, my God. This whole toxic lady. Uh, the fact that it turns out that... She basically used this stuff as a Hail Mary for cancer treatment. Oh. I know. It's so sad. She that already also, suffered enough. I know. That that story is also like a real life version of a real episode of The X-Files. Because it starts out where you're like, it's unexplained. It has to be something, right. whatever. And then in the end, there is a scientific expl explanation for it. Which did happen in a lot of The X-Files. Not all of them, obviously, because of the sure. you know, theme of the show. But yeah. Sure. Uh, I also love that I wrote down rapid aging. Ugh. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Not a reason. Again, I can't explain the notes. Uh, for example, Duchovny and Anderson are an attractive pair. It's like the 1999 classic film The Mummy. Two hot leads with intense chemistry. You don't know where your eyes are supposed to look. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Absolutely. Well, you bring harrowing war crimes and uh good old chuckles over here <laughs> anyhow um oh god a ship disappearing in thin air and then it's like well one guy saw it and then we're just believe oh. mm -hmm. and then all caps limbs sealed to the deck I can't. I would love to see a photo of that. I don't, though. Well, and I, also, I say that I would, but yeah, it also doesn't exist because it didn't course. happen. But yeah, I know. I of hear course, you. but um, uh, the second I heard it, I was like, "Oh, I would need to see photos to believe." But I'm instantly horrified. Yeah, horrified at the very thought. Oh God! So you uh, said the phrase for over a century. Uh, it delighted me and made this feel like a TED Talk in the best way. Uh, I absolutely cannot wait for Christy Science Podcast in 2049. The idea of us retiring from a podcast only to do another one in our 60s feels right. <laughs> UFOologist is a thing, huh? Apparently. Careful. My scully's showing. <laughs> <laughs> I 
You've got the same lost hair. My goddamn mind, right? It just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, a TV MA rating. Uh, that was the moment I was like, it's for the best that I had cracked into a Mike's hard for that second section. Uh, because you know, once you, once you go TV MA, you can't go back. It's, it's not because there's too many puppies in it. Like, it's not going to be good. Oh, God. Thank you for your usage of bum out. It was a real bum out. I liked that a lot. Uh, and thank you for warning me to never see the episode home. <laughs> I may watch through the X-Files at some point. Who knows? But I will be sure to avoid home. Horrifying. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. Also, thank you for Creep Town USA. I like that a lot. It's where I lived for most of this episode. You know what I mean? <laughs> hundred percent. I think we're still there. Yeah. Great news. It's population two now. Oh, we're exploring. Um, we're expanding. I like that a lot. Uh, shout out to a hot young Andy Griffith. Hot. Yeah. Yeah. Also, again, daddy. Hell yeah. He had the, I mean, he was a sheriff for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. He, uh, yeah. Um, I did not have Charlie Chaplin on this episode's bingo card. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, the phrase, they showed me how I done it. It's heartbreaking. Yep. Uh, police potentially frame one of the brothers because they, somebody, them or somebody they knew possibly wanted land. Dirty cops in a small town is more terrifying to me than dirty cops in a big town, big city, whatever, uh, which is also terrifying to me. But in a small town? Oh, Yeah. Like, Andy Griffith wouldn't stand for that shit. Nope. But, uh, cops admitting to forcing a confession. In the early 90s, I thought cops weren't that openly bold until more recent, but I guess I am wrong about that. Yeah, it was a surprising moment. Um, I like the locals rallying around the brothers. I, it was a real surprise. Yeah. Uh, and I found it lovely. Because you would think in a small town, they have a reputation in a small town that they might not be as accepting. And I was happy to be. Uh, and the truth is, is that a lot surprised. of people express that they really don't accept them or like don't don't like uh, respect how they live and all of the above. But but it was really sure. seeing the, the forest for the trees, which was that it was like, we don't really, you know, we we have are kind of frightened or whatever by these people, but they don't deserve to be getting treated that way, which was what was lovely about it was essentially right. like, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I agree to your rights for like <laughs> how you should be treated by the police. I mean, it's nice that they rallied. Yeah. And I, I, I love the, you know, I don't like it, but also they kept to themselves, kept to themselves. They didn't do anything. And also if you let the cops rail, like railroad them into something, it's just going to set you up in the future of the cops doing something to you. Terrible precedence. Exactly. Yes. Uh, medical examiner uh, Cyril Wecht, uh, back again. I remember him in the uh, Jean Benet doc. Yep. Because he was in that where they did the whole recreation thing. And in the end, they were like, it was Burke. And then they got sued by Burke. Badly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Badly. Badly. They say it was Burke. I say, allegedly. Who knows? We did an episode about it. You should check it out. Check it out. 
Um, okay. Oh, God, the war crimes. Um, I know. I also... So X-Files just really hated basic first names, huh? Preferred to go with just a general description. Yep. Red-haired man, cigarette-smoking man. So you knew what you were getting. Yeah. Well, what I liked about cigarette-smoking man was I think you do eventually learn his name in the series, but... Um, he's just always smoking. Like in every scene, sure. it's like you see like an outline and you see like the little bit of cigarette smoke. And it's just like, that's what he was, how he was, you know, because they I never just feel, you know, at that point, if you've waited, if you've like built up this character, never saying a name, and then you finally reveal a name, I just feel like what name would have been not like, like if they were like, oh, it's Carl. I would have been like, Carl, <laughs> Well, it was like Sex it. in the City where he was Mr. Big until the series finale and then it was like his name was john like john that's, oh that's what yeah. you john like okay right yeah you don't find out that his name is john james preston until the first movie as as you know or may not know i am not as familiar with uh sex in the city as well I maybe should. i should bring up some of the real life cases that inspired episodes of that show <laughs> <laughs> oh there have to be real life dating horror stories. oh i think all of them were i think that was like part of the rule in the writer's room was that it had to have happened to you or somebody you knew which i thought was great interesting yeah. oh well there's a whole new podcast for us maybe we've got room in our 2020 2049 our 2049 schedule. slate yeah exactly <laughs> yeah oh god Oh, God, you, (laughs) you talking about the syndicate, Uh, the way that you did it, like your cadence and your, your tone, um, it was exactly Mike Myers in So I Married an Axe Murderer, when the dad is like drunkenly going through his conspiracies, and he just has this moment of the Vatican. Like that was, (laughs) that was... (laughs) Absolutely where you were, and I could not have been happier uh, for it. That's an honor. Uh, You said human experimentation. I immediately thought, oh, God, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) I know. know. Oh, God. Um, I also love one of the things that horrified me the most. Controlled dehydration. That one got you, huh? (laughs) Oh, God, a lot of them got me. No, no, no. For some reason, I just didn't see that as like a... Huh. Who came up with the stuff? Like, who chose to do it? It's almost like they took different words and put them in different buckets, and then they each had to pick one from each bucket, and they're like, we're going to do this to this person, or I this know. to... Yeah. We're going to we're gonna take an arm off. What are we going to do? We're going to put it on another body. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It, again, what was that going to do? I, it all it comes back to accomplish? that quote for me, where it was like... There's a couple of them where it basically says, like, there was really no military apl- apl- applications for any of this. It was just, they were just playing, for lack of a better term, which is so fucking dark and chilling. Yes. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to say there was nothing they did that I'm like, well, I mean, everything they did was horrific. But it's like, I mean, the idea of those releasing those fl- infected fleas. I mean, uh, I can see the war implications there. However, still a goddamn horror show. Yeah. Horror I mean, show. It feels like 
They knew that the plague was bad enough yep. that they put it into fleas and released them to, to kill people. Do you need to then inject people with the plague to see what happens to them? Like, that's the stuff that's that takes it to that neck. I mean, it's all bad either way. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like putting the disease on fleas and releasing them to kill people is heinous and awful and all of the above. But it makes sense in terms of what I guess they were going for. It's sure. then the the extended application of like, but let's take a bunch of people and like really infect them and see what happens to them up close and personal. Like, God, right? I just again to your point. Um, how is this not taught? I don't know, and, and I don't even know whether like a um, small side note footnote as we, part of World War II. We learned about a lot about uh, the Holocaust and about Germany and in and, and World War II, but I don't remember. Any of this, like even a, a touched on. Now, listeners, dear listeners, let us know it, where you grew up. Did you learn about this? We have listeners all over the world. So who knows? Maybe people in different places did. But again, I was just blown away. Yeah. It's also like, I mean, I can't even with the fact that they only got punished for the American victims. Yeah. There was the handful that got convicted in the Soviet trials. And then there was the couple that got convicted because they killed Americans. I mean, I, how do you not hear they killed hundreds of thousands of people? How, how could you not hear that and go, oh, they should be punished? They, there was too much away. They should, whatever. I think that it was just viewed as being, there was too much to gain. And I think it was a fear. Well, I know. I, I just, oh my God. Um, Jesus. Oh, the Poison Gas Research Committee. Also something not on my bingo card? Nope. Uh, I guess really the only thing on that card was Lauren will be charming. And let me say, a bingo! <laughs> <laughs> I've lost my mind. I love it. Um, the playfulness of the experimenters, again, is... Uh, I mean, I've heard uh, stories of, like, the Nazis, like, laughing and smiling and whatever as they uh, did the horrific things they did. But, like... And while that is next level, I cannot imagine... Being like, well, and now I'm going to dissect this person while they're alive yep, and awake. And the fact that they were like, oh, this was standard practice for Japanese surgeons in China at the time. I'm sorry, what? I know. No, 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 no. Um, Oh, God. Yeah. Again, the planes with the diseased fleas, the thought that they had it all planned out for it to go to America, which, you know, they're not going to just stop. At San Diego. No. I was also interested San Diego was a choice. I, I guess it would have been cl- a- close. Like they could make that. Like, I wonder if there was something about like how long the fleas could live. Like, oh, proximity situation. Proximity. Got it. Yeah, that's fair. But I mean, my God, by all it would take is let's see how that goes. And then we'll find a way to get it somewhere else. Yeah. And just basically start taking over the world. Yeah. I. A horror show. Yeah. Um, psychopathically sadistic. <laughs> yeah. Again, horror show. Yeah. Oh, my God. Again, the immunity for the researchers, the U.S. deciding to conceal it. 
Oh my God. Um, uh, I wrote a, th in the middle of that wrote, thank you for falling on the sword for us, sparing us these details. I am so sorry for what you had to go through there. I don't ever want to say the words again that I read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah. Look, I mean, don't it was, it. It, it was about to be a time that Gacy was going to be surpassed for you. I didn't think it ever could be. And it, and I, and I did, and I really did. And that's saying something. So there you go. Yeah. But what I loved, did I see Dave Grohl coming up organically? I did not. I somehow should have, but I did not. Um, the fact that he is a super fan, adorable. Yep. Adorable. Um, fun fact, Walking After You is my favorite Foo Fighters song. Oh, I love that song. It breaks me um in the best way um oh god well i mean my notes were, <laughs> were so scattered and all over the place um did you have anything else you wanted to add no i think i really left it all in the field um you, you know did. it was really such a joy all jokes aside i could not have enjoyed this more um and yeah we got i got i got more to take over on the patreon there so there you go oh Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. Well, then let me say, Lauren Ash, thank you for your research. Forgive me for saying, what a fucking delight. Informative, fun, and nostalgic. Kudos to you for this idea and for curating the entire thing. I honestly cannot wait for more episodes of this or other shows that you magically pull out. Uh, this has been a true gift. So we thank you for that. I thank you. Uh, and thank you, dear listeners, for taking this journey with us. We appreciate your support. As always, make sure to give us a follow on the socials. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, or on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you're looking for uh, a way to spend more time with us, you want to know more, the extra X-Files stuff that she told you you were going to have, then head on over to patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. There's bonus episodes polls for future episodes, live Q&A. Check it out if you want more. And if you're looking to snag any True Crime and Cocktails merch, head to truecrewmerch.com, the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails gear. Now, Lauren, would you like to tell the people about our next episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Pamela Smart. Oh, that's right. I'm back to not driving. And getting into Pam Smart. I mean, if nothing else, it's 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 not Japanese war crimes. <laughs> and thank <laughs> God think, for that. I think we're all scarred. Uh, but we're all better for it. Again. We're all better for if it. If you don't know your history, you're damned to repeat it. So there you go. There, there you go. Uh, Lauren, would you like to say goodnight to the people? Good night, David Duchovny. Good night, Nelson Twins. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued 
by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.